Anand, you've set you set the stage, and uh, let's. I think this is going to be a great one. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we've got a, a really, uh, as as Mark is calling it, epic lineup for today, and uh, I love that word because it, it is an epic time in cannabis. Um, mm-hmm. And and I wanted to start off by thanking the 361 community because it's because of community members and the prep and the planning that happens in meetings like. Uh, like the ones we do that leads to such great panels and the diversity that we have, um, you know, uh, minorities, women uh, who have very significant experience in the cannabis space. And it's all just a matter of networking and knowing enough people uh, because the diversity exists. And uh, and so I'm, I'm very proud to say that we we were able to represent that. Um, so so I'm just going to give a few uh, high level points and then I'm going to start with the keynote speakers. Uh, starting with Tim. Um, so in terms of timing for this event, because we wanted to get so many angles on what's happening in the cannabis space, we have a pretty jam-packed set of uh, uh, panels here. Uh, so the keynote is, you know, running about seven minutes late, no big deal. You know, we, we have uh, four main keynotes and then uh, up till about 12.15. If somebody's running a little over, as everybody who's been to these meetings knows before, uh, you know, I start to change my background to yellow. Uh, as just an indicator that we're uh, kind of running to, to wrap up your thoughts. Um, and then what we're going to do is uh, start off with the spotlight videos. Most speakers, if not all, have recorded a spotlight video. So I'll play that. And then we'll go into uh, any kind of slides that the speaker might have to, to kind of define how they're involved in the cannabis space and what their background experience is. And, and then I'll move on to uh, potentially asking some Q&A or, or to go through all the, the main speakers and then circling back with the Q&A at the end so I make sure everybody gets enough time. Um, in terms of the audience, you know, feel free to put your questions as we're going through the event into the chat. Uh, we'd love to highlight some of them. You, you, we're not going to have a lot of Q&A time per panel, but towards the end of the session where a lot of the summarizing of all the things we've gone over happens in the town hall section, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of um, Q&A and, and interaction at that point. Not every speaker is going to be able to stay to that point, but I'm just giving that as background. So, so the goal of our events, and this is a great partnership between, you know, Bar Capital 361 firm and the community here, um, is to really educate you about what's happening in real time underlying this space. A lot of the headlines and, and kind of publicly available information is just scratching the surface. And there's been folks involved in the space now for six, seven years. And that's in, in cannabis years, that is, you know, uh, like a generation. All right. So it's, it's a long time. Um, so um, I'm going to also highlight that in, in, in understanding what's happening in this space, you really have to look at where things are. You know, I got involved after California went recreational because I said this, this ball is now, you know, snowballing and it's, there's no going back. But we're back at, uh, you know, safe banking being pushed through the House. The Senate is in a different environment currently than it was even, uh, you know, clearly a year ago. And and at the same time, we have these huge deficits in uh, in, in every budget from local to federal. And so this this is this is the moment for cannabis. I mean, it, it doesn't mean it's going to get legalized, you know, tomorrow, but the dominoes are really lined up. And the biggest domino, in, in my opinion, the first domino is safe banking. And if that passes and the banking lobby is aligned with the cannabis industry, lots of great things are going to happen. And, and, and so I'll, I'll give you one other quick kind of anecdote. 
in terms of where cannabis stands in in popular culture and also at the senator level where this really matters in understanding what it is as an industry and, and, and changing perception. And I'll, I'll do this with a, a quick demo. So so everybody who knows me for a period of time knows I wear glasses, right? And and so that's kind of part of my brand. But I got LASIK uh, about a month ago. And so I don't need these. They're completely powerless. Um, and your perceptions as I took off my glasses changed about me if you're if you're seeing me for the first time you know quite literally somewhere in your subconscious or your past experiences i'm not potentially as intelligent as i was a minute ago um and other other opinions are formed for cannabis that moment is coming where it will go from being a vice to be be seen as equivalent to alcohol or aspirin um as i describe it so um, that that moment is building both from a political level as well as well as a cultural level, and it's a very very exciting time for the next two to five years. It's going to be, you know, really really exciting to be part of it. So I'll stop there uh, uh, opining, and I'm going to turn it over to uh, our keynote panel, and 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 first off to uh, Tim Seymour, who many of you obviously know from uh, his appearances on on CNBC. I'm going to play your video real quick here, Tim, and then I will uh, I will turn it over to you. Um, or Mark, if you want to you want to take take the share. Yeah, sure. Let me let me do the share here real quick because I've got it queued up. Um, so I'm going to share this and hopefully everybody can hear the uh, everybody can see the video now. Correct. Yep. OK, here we go. Hey, good morning. My name is Tim Seymour. I am the portfolio manager of the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF, ticker CNBS. I'm also a member of the investment committee at JW Asset Management, which is one of the largest cannabis-focused hedge funds in the space, certainly an early player in the space. I advise a number of companies in the cannabis sector. Uh, I work with Lulahan Loki, helping them build out their cannabis practice. Uh, I've been talking about cannabis on CNBC for the last five or six years and trying to uh, focus investors' attention on what I think really are the exciting investment dynamics here. Um, we know that this is a very important social story and cultural story uh, and an evolution. It's also soon to be uh, and becoming maybe even now a very sophisticated consumer product story. Uh, my background's in emerging markets. A lot of the parallels to me for cannabis investing, I, I think I've seen over the years in, in uh, the world of these emerging countries. But this emerging asset class is here uh, excited to be part of the 420 Summit. Uh, congrats to 361 Firm and Bar Capital for getting us all together. Looking forward to being part of today's discussion. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for recording the spotlight videos. Makes things much more efficient. So I'm going to queue up your slides, Tim, and feel free to take the floor now. Thanks, Anand. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, exciting day. We all know what day uh, on the calendar it is. And I, I think... Um, you know, talking about the sector for me is talking about, you know, uh, there's so many uh, really in-depth <laughs> participants in the sector today. So I, I'm going to stick to the investing world and I'm going to stick to really my ETF world. Um, and, and, you know, because I think the, 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 the relative infancy and the relative inefficiency of this industry, um, you know, first of all, at work today, 
uh, if I look at the screens in front of me that, that show the industries down three to five percent, um, U.S., Canada, global, wherever, ancillary tech, you know, you name it. We'll, these are all ways to invest in the sector at, at a time when the fundamentals are about as good as, as they've they could have been expected to have been at this point in history. If you'd asked me two years ago. Um, so we, we, the exciting news on safe in the house. Yeah, we've kind of been there before. Um, I'm not sure this even begins to address capital markets and listing standards. A lot of the folks tuned in today are institutional investors, uh, and a lot of institutional capitals on the sidelines. And that's, that's just, you know, one of the dynamics that, that I think is important to talk about. Um, this first slide just, you know, just is more about what I just gave on my intro. I'll, I'll simply say, uh, we launched this ETF two years ago, um, you know, excited that it, it's uh, been, uh, you know, a performer, but one that's been a way for people to invest thematically in the sector in an active capacity with a fund manager uh, in, in myself who spent a lot of time investing in new asset classes. And so if you're investing in cannabis, um, you know, fundamentals uh, are, are, you know, to be, I don't know, viewed through a lens of macro and top down and then and then bottom up. And as I mentioned, as an emerging markets guy, I remember when investing in Brazil or in Russia um, was as simple as understanding where the next IMF tranche of money was going to come from. Um, and, and, you know, similar to cannabis on the legislative map, we know what happened north of the border. Uh, we know as the states unfolded, and obviously California in China 2018 was really the wake-up call for our country. Um, my other roles, as I mentioned, I, I, I'm investing on, the, on the, the private side, and I sit inside of the investment committee of one of the biggest hedge funds at JW Asset, and we've been looking at the sector for a while. Um, just on CNBC, it's just as simple as saying, look, um, when I first started having the conversation, the goal was to not have this be uh, Cheech and Chong B-roll um, and bong water sound effects that inevitably my executive producer at the time started rolling uh, in the background. And, um, you know, and, and actually, with all due respect to, to Tommy Chong and, and Cheech Marin, who actually have been really important part of some part of this industry, um, it's really to me about looking at this industry from a perspective of, of a sophisticated consumer products industry. So if you roll to the next slide, um, you can see a little bit about what we're doing inside of the ETF. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, uh, as, as I've listed here, we're a ETF that's trying to be very much investing in cannabis, not investing in tobacco companies that might be here, not investing in pharma companies that might be here, um, but investing in companies. So more than 80% of the portfolio has to have more than 50% of the revenue stream coming from cannabis. Um, the, the, you know, look, my role is both as someone that's in the industry every day, uh, I'm constantly meeting with companies or uh, industry leaders or other investors or, you know, I, I think it's really critical to be involved in the sector and be involved in the sector on a daily basis because of the pace of change. And, and, and I think, you know, whether it's been IPOs uh, that we've been able to invest in as they've been coming out. And, and so, you know, a couple of ones you can see listed there were ones that we participated in, you know, day one of allocations. And that's pretty exciting. I think there's going to be a lot more of that going on. M&A taking place, uh, a lot of that going on. At times, corporate governance events have been unfolding uh, by uh, the minute that have meant, you know, hands off on a bunch of companies. And I think that's also really important as an EM guy, corporate governance. That's all people ever talked about in emerging markets. Um, and, and yet I think in cannabis, it's important to talk about 
those those dynamics. Um, you know, one of the exciting things that uh, we've announced today is that we can now invest uh, in the entire spectrum of U.S. plant touching um, or ancillary um, or you know Canadian or global. So um, it's important that we followed what we thought was a, a very conservative approach to investing as a 40 Act governed SEC product. It's an ETF, and therefore um, we made this move when we felt we actually had a highly uh, we had a lot of confidence in what was going on in the background. So the, the goal of the portfolio is to be thematic. Um, but it's 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 also to be tactical. And, and I'll just say simply, um, you know, a lot of people that have I'm sure people focus here on cannabis today have been aware of this whole U.S. versus Canada dynamic. At times it's been it's been emotional. Um, at times it's been a dangerous red herring for a lot of investors investing in, in Canadian names who have been listed on the New York Stock Exchange because they could. Well, U.S. companies who might have better fundamentals, who might have a much bigger addressable market, not surprisingly, look, like in every other sector and product category in the world, the United States is the biggest, most interesting market. Why shouldn't it be in cannabis? And, and it is. Um, but, but following capital flows as an emerging markets investor is an important uh, you know, dynamic of, of what I have to do as a portfolio manager. And again, uh, Part of today's messaging from everybody is this is an industry that's evolving and the way people access it and invest in it is something that I have to be, uh, on, you know, have kind of my finger on the pulse of it. it it's, it's like investing in Russia. And I lived in Russia for a couple of years and I, I was partners in a Russian investment bank. You know, we, we, people woke up to emerging markets a lot earlier, uh, uh, you know, then whenever it was that we were knocking on their door. But but the holy grail on on some level for us as capital markets guys was when, you know, you think of Russia, for example, you think of oil and gas and natural resources, you think of at least from the investable perspective, you think of a lot of things when you think of Russia. But but getting Fidelity's uh, oil and gas analysts, not just their generalists, not their EM guy, but their oil and gas sector specific analysts to be investing in, 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 excuse me, in, in Russian oil and gas assets was a very big day. Um, and it was, a, it was kind of a holy grail day. And for, for cannabis investors, um, getting sophisticated CPG, um, whether it's consumer products or retail or obviously pharma and, and some of the other things that we know about, when they come into this industry, it's going to be a game changer. And that's part of the exposure that I want, you know, our investors to have. Next slide, please. You know, simply, I'm not going to get into this. I don't think we're doing things that differently than a lot of fund managers do. But I, I think there's there's a process. There's an investable universe, which, as I mentioned, just grew. Um, I, I care a lot about top down. I care a lot about bottom up. I care a lot about exogenous factors. And, and let's just be clear, um, you know, cannabis is going through a kind of a scary time right now in terms of if you look at the charts, uh, as mentioned, at, at a time when the fundamentals are are really, really uh, I, I think on a relative basis to where they were, um, extraordinary. You've seen assets pull all the way back to kind of almost Georgia runoff levels, um, where the composition of the Senate and, and the implications of that for cannabis legislation hadn't even been decided yet, yet we pulled back to those levels. Some of this is about being tactical and, 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 you know, right now it, it's, Scary if you're a cannabis investor because here's cannabis um, in a bear market at a time when global markets are at all-time highs. And I'll tell you as an EM guy, um, if global markets are in turmoil, um, higher beta, higher volatility asset classes are not going to perform well. Um, so we're missing a really interesting point, but but we're all in this for, for the long trade. 
Uh, next slide, please. And, and I think that that's, that's really the, the ultimate message here. And, and just look, this is a, a little bit of grandstanding. I mean, I think, you know, uh, this, this ETF has outperformed, uh, the space. It's outperformed its, its, its competitors. Um, because I, I think of being active and being in the middle of the industry. Um, I think the, the most important thing we can continue to do here, um, is, is to be investing alongside of a sector that is continuing to evolve. And that's both, uh, the, the broadening of the investment landscape. And that's through, uh, you know, ancillary trades, technology trades, uh, companies that we're seeing on the private equity side and the hedge fund that are slowly getting ready for that listing op- opportunity. And, and, and we see them and they're real. Um, and it's, and it's, it's not cannabis 1.0 and 2.0. It's probably closer to 3.0. Um, but there's going to be so many phases of this development. Um, next slide, please. Uh, yeah, I, I just recap it there. Um, I'm looking forward to being involved in the conversation today. But, um, you know, if you want to tune in uh, once a week, I do a weekly where I, I go through what I think are the critical issues, both in the macro, uh, the markets themselves, and, and then talk about asset allocation within uh, the sector. So thanks for the time this morning and, and uh, really great to be here at an exciting moment in history for cannabis. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. Um, and I'll ask one question and then I'll, I'll kind of uh, do the other panelists. Um, you know, in, in, you've been involved since, since when in the cannabis industry, just so the audience is aware? In 2015. 2015. So uh, quite, quite a while in the cannabis space. And, how how have you seen you, you describe you know cannabis 3.0? What do you think is the key difference uh, in companies kind of today? Uh, obviously, some some have developed over this time and and, and they've just benefited from uh, capital raises and, and growth in the industry. But are you seeing a difference in the kind of deal flow that's coming across kind of your your circulation in, in terms of sophistication or management or any any of those factors? It's night and day, Ed, but the biggest thing that defines the, the, the industry now is profitability. So this isn't, this isn't growth at all costs. This isn't, you know, capital destructive uh, infrastructure build out to nowhere. This isn't valuing companies on an asset-based valuation. It's about evaluating companies on profitability um, and the strategic fit between M&A deals, not just, hey, one plus one equals three. You know, in, in 1.0, um, and, you know, I, I would argue that was, you know, the, the M&A and really 1.5, uh, it was 1 plus 1 was thought to equal 3 when, in fact, it equaled 1.3. 2.0 was was more sophisticated C-suite and evolution of just uh, on the operators. And, and 3.0 right now is, is about look, companies that are very, very profitable. Um, big debates. There's all kinds of themes that are going to be talked about today, I bet. Um, asset light, asset heavy, interstate commerce. Um, some people might say the market is talking right now when you see that some of these MSOs who are highly, highly profitable have a substantial moat around their business. How could they be trading the way they've traded over the last eight weeks? Um, is that an indictment of the model? Um, I don't think so. But these are themes that are, are defining the sophistication of the industry now relative to where we were. Thank you. Um, I, th- I absolutely agree with that. It, it's, it's been amazing also in the di- during the COVID period, I think, it was so hard to raise capital for cannabis companies that the, the bad ideas just didn't make it through. And also more experienced people from other industries are entering. So um, exciting times. Um, so I'll, I'll keep uh, I'll keep rolling along the, the panel and we'll circle back for more Q&A. But thank you, Tim, for, for that uh, background. Um, so next up here is uh, Chris Crane, uh, which I will queue up the video for you here, Chris, and then I'll turn it over to you in a minute here. Uh, let me 
play this now. There was a question in the chat that might play to him. Is that trying to understand what exactly how that house has passed? Yes, may, we're gonna. He may, he may, may be covering that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna jump into that. Chris is the uh, uh, right person to speak to on that front. So here we go. Hi, my name is Chris Crane, and I am the president and co-founder of Forefront Ventures. Uh, we are a multi-state operator uh, here in the U.S., operating across six states currently. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years, so we've uh, kind of seen it all in the space. Uh, prior to this, I spent my career in uh, cannabis and drug policy advocacy, uh, having served as associate director of Normal and the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, I am currently the vice chair of the board of directors of the National Cannabis Industry Association, uh, as well as serving on a number of uh, trade association uh, board of directors as well. Uh, I'm also involved in this space globally uh, through my role as a principal in Anderson Leonard Pharmaceuticals. Uh, we are a, a licensed cultivator, producer, exporter in the Republic of North Macedonia, uh, which I believe is positioned to be a natural uh, low-cost producer, exporter country for the emerging European cannabis market. So happy to talk about that as well. Uh, I'm excited to join the 361 global community this 420 and look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you, Chris. And if you're on the line here, yeah, I see you there. Please uh, feel free to kind of give some context around um, how you're involved currently uh, and, and by the way, to all speakers and panelists that, you know, feel free to share your screen directly as well. If you've got any slides you want to share. Uh, but, but, um, I'll kind of, uh, open up to you, Chris, to kind of first answer perhaps the, the burning question that folks have, which is where do we stand in terms of cannabis regulation? Where do you see, you know, this, this current safe banking bill going and, and, and then beyond? Sure. So uh, that's a great question. I think it's the one that's uh, sort of a topic that's on everybody's mind right now, given that safe banking just passed the House yesterday for the uh, second time in two years. Um, so that was uh, that was great to see. It was uh, not unexpected, although it did happen I think, a little faster than many of us would have uh, would have thought. Um, the real question, of course, is whether or not uh, this is going to pass the Senate and become law. Uh, I, you know, I'm not one to make predictions. Uh, on these things, uh, but I do follow it fairly closely. If I had to guess, I would say that it likely will become law this year. Um, I, I do think it's a matter of timing and vehicle. Um, so right now, the, what the, what's happening with the political dynamics in the Senate is we almost certainly have the 60 votes needed to pass safe banking as a standalone. However, um, there is a lot of pressure on uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer in particular uh, to first take up a bill that does more to address issues of equity um, and, uh, and 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 uh, and you know and making sure that there's that there's sort of a path to participation in the industry for uh, communities that have been most impacted by prohibition. And while banking does that to a degree uh, in terms of making capital available to uh, equity operators in a way that it currently isn't. And that's why it's supported by an organization like the Minority Cannabis Business Association. It's not seen as an equity focused or equity forward bill. Um, and so if they don't go for an equity focused bill, something like the Moore Act or uh, whatever the bill is that, that Senator Schumer and Senator Booker are going to be introducing here imminently, if they don't do that first, you may lose some support from folks like Senator Booker and others on the left for safe banking because they don't, they think it doesn't adequately address uh, it doesn't adequately address, address the equity issue. So I think the way that this is going to play out is that the 
the Senate will likely take up the new bill. Uh, we'll call it More Act 2.0 because we don't know yet exactly what's going to be in it. I think they'll take that up first um, because that's a much broader ranging bill. And hey, if we're lucky enough to get that passed, that also addresses banking, right? So, and, and the House would the House would be able to pass a more a broader reform bill. They passed the More Act last year, so that would solve the issue if they can pass that. I'm quite pessimistic that that will pass. Um, uh, I don't think we have 50 votes, let alone 60, for full legalization in the Senate right now. Um, so I don't think we have every Democrat on board yet. Um, uh, and so my guess is that that will play out first. And then once that does not pass, they then come back to safe banking as the compromise that then folks like Booker uh, and others can say, look, we tried on the broader bill. Let's get the low hanging fruit taken care of. Um, it's also possible that this gets that this gets uh, rolled into a larger spending bill later on this year um, and gets passed as an amendment to a bigger bill rather than as a standalone. But I think chances are quite high that we do get banking reform passed uh, as part of this Congress. Um, and, and what does that exactly mean for our audience, which, you know, uh, varies in terms of their knowledge of what exactly the bill is about? Um, if safe banking passes, you know, how does business change for the average cannabis company from now to to this post bill passing period? Well, uh, you know, I don't think we fully know yet, to be frank, but there are some things that we that I think we that we that we do know. And there are some other things that we can speculate on. Um, you know, the one thing that we do know is it will make it a lot easier for, for cannabis companies to get bank accounts. Um, and that seems like a relatively small thing, but it's actually a pretty big deal, right? E- even though we have the FinCEN guidance today and most, most cannabis companies have a bank account, the fees for those bank accounts are incredibly high. Um, they're often in places that are really inconvenient for the businesses. You know, by way of example, you know, we, one of our stores in Chicago was, fell victim to some of the looting that happened last year. And you know, part of the issue that we have was you know, the bank that we use, the only bank that we've been able to use in Illinois, is located in southern Illinois. And so they're only able to do um, you know, cash drops once, twice a week if we're lucky. Um, right, rather than every night being able to just go down to the local bank and make a cash drop. And so it makes us more of a target uh, for for these types of, of, of robberies and lootings than we might otherwise be uh, if we were able to bank like anybody else. Um, so just the day to day functions of banking are going to be a lot easier. The big question is, what does it do for investment? Um, my guess on this is that you know, major investment firms are still likely going to sit on the sideline at least until uh, there's, uh, you know, there, there, there's broader federal reform, um, right, because still banking businesses that are illegal under federal law, there, there comes a lot of risk with that. But I do think some will jump in. I mean, we're at a place now where for the last few years, a lot of individuals who are part of larger firms have been making investments into um, cannabis businesses. Some uh, institutional firms have started to get in. And so I think that this likely, you know, this, I don't think it opens the floodgates, but I think it starts a, a trickle, so to speak, right? It's a crack in the dam. And we do start to see some investment, institutional investment coming into the space. I also think it opens up a lot of individual investors who have been sitting on the sidelines that are going to see this as a permission slip for them to start getting involved. So I think we will see a very meaningful injection of new capital into the industry. I think it likely means that the valuations for the publicly traded U.S. MSOs likely go up uh, once this passes, right? Because that, because people know that this new injection of capital is coming in. Unfortunately, as it's currently written, it likely does not mean uh, U.S. companies will get access to the NYSE or the NASDAQ the way the Canadian companies do. Um, that would be a major game changer, but I don't think that this quite accomplishes that. 
Um, it's not explicitly spelled out, and so I think they'll, they'll likely be risk-averse enough to uh, that, they, that they likely won't start allowing U.S. MSOs in. But I do think we'll see a real wave of new capital entering the space, um, and it will be a, a big boom for, uh, for, for everybody, including the smaller operators. Because right now, when you talk about smaller businesses and social equity o- operators in particular, without – the ability for them to go and get a bank loan. And that's the other thing that I think will open up, right? Smaller banks, community banks, local banks will likely start making lines of credit available to businesses, particularly those that are located in their state, which are currently not available to them. Um, That's a major game changer for the social equity applicants and smaller businesses who right now have very few opportunities to access capital outside of going to one of the the major operators who are looking for more market penetration in their state by, uh, you know, by taking pieces of smaller, uh, you know, of smaller businesses. And and could you talk about, you mentioned Macedonia as, as a focus of yours in one of the projects you're working on. Um, I'm imagining some international banking might open up too, or at least companies, um, uh, being able to have uh, a clearer picture of, of, of local banking, uh, maybe less, uh, you know, international banking as far as facilitating it uh, may, may improve. But could you talk more about Macedonia and what you see as far as Europe as an opportunity? Absolutely. So, yes, I, I am a principal in Anderson Leonard Pharmaceuticals. We're a licensed cultivator in the Republic of North Macedonia, um, currently raising capital to build out our GMP uh, facility. Uh, also looking at Macedonia as what may very well be the first country in Europe to legalize for adult use. Um, there's a major push happening there. The, the parliamentary process is happening. The prime minister is very uh, supportive of this. Um, so we, you know, we, we like to be early uh, uh, for, for these kinds of developments. And so want to be on the ground before this happens. And we are there as one of the licensed um, uh, licensees in the country, um, not promising that'll happen, but there is a good chance of it uh, by later on this year. But really what attracted me to North Macedonia is, is, you know, I'm trying to look at this a few years out and looking at, you know, what are the countries that are going to be, you know, sort of natural consumer countries? What are going to be countries that, that, that will be sort of natural hubs for the production of consumer packaged goods? And what are the countries for that, that are sort of natural fits for low cost production, really low cost cultivation at scale? And for that, you've got to look at countries that are that have a history of uh, of large scale commercial agriculture that are well situated from a climate standpoint, but also have you know very low costs of water, power, land, and labor, um, as well as access to major consumer markets. And I think and I think you also, in addition to those, want, want to look for countries that meet those criteria, but that also have a head start and a government that's been that that, that has really embraced uh, being that that type of producer country. So when we look at the, the Western Hemisphere and the North American markets, right, when international commerce opens up, I think a country like Colombia has really well positioned themselves to be a natural uh, low-cost producer country. I think Mexico is, you know, they're a little bit further behind in terms of the legislative process, but they're getting close. And I think they, you know, given how how big of a producer country they are for, for commercial agriculture in general, will be really well situated. And this is especially when you're thinking about, you know, producing the biomass um, right and, and the ingredients that will go into the final consumer packaged goods that's going to be able to be produced a lot a, you know a lot more cost efficiently in places like Mexico and Colombia than it will be in you know California or even in the United States. So I think most of the CPG goods eventually that are produced in the U.S. are likely going to include biomass that's been grown in these producer countries. And when you look at Europe, 
and you look at the countries that are that, that are situated, I think North Macedonia is probably the best situated country right now um, because they have the lowest cost of land, labor, power, water on the European continent. Uh, it's an EU candidate country, so there's free trade with, with Europe. They should be in the EU within the next few years. Um, and, regulator- and from a regulatory standpoint, have a major head start on other countries like, say, Bulgaria, um, you know, Albania would be similarly situated, but it's not really a country you can feel comfortable doing business in because it's, it's kind of a narco state uh, in terms of uh, who's running the government there. Um, so I looked at Macedonia as, a, as, a, as, as, you know, as the place where when the race to the bottom for cultivation at scale for the European markets happens, right, that's where you're ultimately going to want to be. And so was able to to partner with actually my, my, my college roommate, uh, someone I've been very close friends with for 25 years, who is extremely well connected both politically and in the business community there, uh, which is really important when you're dealing with, the, you know, with a smaller country like North Macedonia. Um, and we're able to obtain that license fairly early on so that we can, you know, we can already be there when everybody starts sort of racing to these, these producer countries, especially in Europe. Great. Thank you, Chris. That's a really good perspective. Appreciate it on a broad range of items. So, uh, thank you, uh, for that. Absolutely. And so I'll, I'll, I'll move along in terms of the keynote speakers and then circle back at the end to open it up for the, the whole panel. Um, and so next up we have, uh, Paul Beatty and, and again, um, everybody was very good about uploading their video. So I'm going to play, uh, Paul's, uh, video and then turn it over to him. Alan, you may want to just hear it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, I think the audio didn't come across uh, too great on that clip. So, uh, Paul, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Uh, so you, you can... Uh, can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep, now, yep. now it's clear. Sorry about that. Uh, obviously, technically, we're not that competent. I don't know why the audio didn't work. Anyway, listen, it's very uh, simple uh, story. We, uh, My name is Paul Biddy. We run a uh, hedge fund here in uh, Montreal and Toronto. We've been investing uh, quite aggressively in the cannabis space for three years now. Uh, we, uh, we love the space. It's our largest uh, industry waiting. Um, we've probably met with and or invested in over uh, 200 firms now. Uh, it's hard to imagine, uh, but the industry grew that quickly uh, in public companies, right, uh, or companies of private about to go public. Uh, we think we uh, have a good idea um, of where the value is, and, uh, and then I guess the one big message I wanted to bring to everybody today is, uh, is you know, we think it's a, an opportunity of a lifetime, really. And we've been saying this for two years now. We've documented that uh, it's very rare in your life you're going to see an emerging industry uh, where the business already exists. So, look, it's very simple math. Uh, there's a, it's a $50 billion market uh, in the U.S. alone. So if you have a $50 billion market, you should have a value of three times at a minimum amount. So you've got $150 billion in market cap to build over the next couple of years that already exists. 
it's got to transfer from maybe the, the, uh, the black market to, to more legitimate sources, but you know it's there. And uh, right now, if you add up the value of all the public companies in the U.S., you only get to 50. So uh, we are very bullish on the space, um, and, and uh, the trend's going to continue. Uh, I can say that without a doubt. We also like, uh, as, uh, as, as Tim was pointing out, uh, one of the other speakers, uh, you can now look at profitability uh, in some of the U.S. players. It really is quite amazing uh, just how uh, these companies are ramping up. You know, margins of... Uh, uh, Verano came out with margins of uh, what 40, uh, 47% uh, EBITDA margins. Okay, this is a this is a company that's only been around four or five years, so uh, I think it's great south of the border. And I guess one of the other messages I'd like to bring to you today is uh, is what is going on uh, in the uh, in the Canadian market is anything but uh, positive. And so one uh, one has a terrific opportunity, uh, I think, to hedge out all your exposure if you want in this in the space, because you can you can you can go short the uh, the Canadian larger cap players that already have an enormous, you know terrific valuations, but zero sign of profitability. Uh, we we've seen the numbers are coming out uh, every day now in Canada. The big players are, are really disappointing. I mean, COVID is not helping, I think, in, in many ways. But the reality is the government's too involved north of the border. And so uh, here's a great opportunity. You've got an investment opportunity for a lifetime, and then you've got a way to hedge it out. Uh, anybody who's, who's ignoring this market, I think, uh, of these opportunities is, is, is crazy. Because in an expensive market, uh, expensive financial markets, this is truly a, this is truly a gift uh, for investors. So we're, uh, we're quite bullish. We're... Uh, we're looking uh, to launch in the U.S. We're looking to find U.S. investors that want to get involved. We think you should do it in a hedged way if you can. Uh, we think the natural hedge is there. It's there for anybody to see. Uh, it's not that complicated. Uh, uh, and uh, why would you invest in Like I was just on the phone this morning with, a, with a, the latest company, uh, uh, Ascend, is going public in the, uh, up here in Canada, but it's a U.S. Uh, MSO. Uh, Send is going to, it's, it's already profitable. It's been profitable almost from the day it started. Uh, these guys have a market cap uh, going out that's going to be less than uh, the five biggest players in Canada. They make more money already than uh, all five of them. So, you know, it's just so straightforward. You buy the company that makes money and hyper growth, they're going to be in New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts. And you get a cheaper valuation on all metrics. Uh, I think it's exciting, right? It's very exciting. Um, to to uh, your last two speakers' point, you know, where where's the business going? Uh, you know, from a from a opportunity point of view with the with the public markets in the states, we think the safe that'd be great if it, if, it, uh, if it happened this year. We do think uh, that the stock markets in the U.S. are probably going to be more aggressive than they have been once the state. Uh, CFAC passes, we think the NASDAQ is probably just going to say, we're prepared to take the risk and we're prepared to lose some of these companies. I think that's a very logical thing to do. You guys were talking about emerging markets before. There used to be laws against Russian companies being listed on the U.S. exchange. Well, moves happen by the exchange making decisions to, uh, uh, to allow you know, Russian companies to be listed in America. And I think uh, I think you could take a. It's quite logical to take a little bit more aggressive uh, view on the timing of when that's going to happen. 
and that's going to be the game changer uh, in terms of valuation. Uh, so it's exciting. Uh, it's, it's, it's evolving. And I can tell you just to reemphasize this, and I'll, I'll leave with uh, this last point, is that as it is more complicated uh, in the U.S., but, you know, as, as, as it takes more time and, uh, and every day that goes by where it's not clear at the federal level, I can tell you the MSOs, the U.S. operators, existing operators, are getting stronger and stronger. And uh, the rest of the world is uh, getting less and less or having fewer and fewer opportunities to invest in America at an operating level uh, uh, cheaply. So I think the days of getting in cheaply are over. But I think uh, just the delays of, of getting in for some of these Canadian big boys is uh, it's just dragging out too long. And therefore, they're not going to get the, the cheap uh, opportunity. So uh, I think this every day that goes on just reinforces the opportunity by U.S., short Canada, and, uh, and uh, make yourself a lot of money. So with that, uh, brief, but uh, at least you can hear me. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you, Paul. Uh, appreciate that. And, you know, one of your key points is, you know, the, the Canadian government really screwed up how they went about things. Could you elaborate that so the audience can really get a sense of that? What, what exactly did they do wrong in, in, in the rollout that they've done? Well, you know, it's uh, it's just in general, the government is far too involved in every single aspect of uh, of the business, and uh, I, I don't think the government's uh, goal is the same as uh, you know investors and uh, and entrepreneurs, uh, right? So, so the problem is, you know, the largest retailers uh, in Canada are going to be the governments. So, you know, the, the government becomes the client. I mean, you get these licenses, which is terrific. Of course, you're in a northern climate. It's not Southern California. You're not. It's not as easy to you know, to grow cheap cannabis. You know, high quality cheap cannabis is better in a sunnier climate. So, you know, you've got these higher costs. And then at the provincial level, you know, you have to have to uh, you had to build out uh, per province. But then you've got to retail to the government. Who who wants to retail to the government? I mean, come on. And they um, and then you can't build a brand. You, you were prevented from building a brand. Like the moment that happens. You could ask yourself, how do you even build value for investors? And so uh, I just I just love the U.S. model so much more. Um, another another perfect example: Lowell uh, Farms, uh, right, a public company down in the states. They just announced they're doing a, a licensing brand, so they're going to be making this stuff in California, but they're going to be licensing to Massachusetts and Illinois through an, an existing operator there. They're going to produce the band, the brand. But it's going to be marketed like you can go nationwide theoretically today in America, build your brand by doing licensing deals, and uh, so you know that's where the profit is. That's where the that's where the shareholder value is over time. And I, you know, the Canadian government doesn't get a whole lot of things right. I mean, last night they just decided to spend thirty billion dollars on building uh, uh, childcare uh, facilities across the country. I mean, it's uh, do we really need more daycare? I, I'm not so sure, but thirty billion bucks in Canada. That's uh, that's the equivalent of the U.S. doing three hundred billion dollars in, uh, in childcare. I mean, it's uh, I, you know, government's involved far too much. Basically, they should have let the entrepreneurs uh, run with the business, and it would have worked beautifully. Uh, unfortunately, but you know, you can't get everything right. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Um, and I'll I'll 
go uh, to Brian uh, Sheng next and then circle back because I think there's an uh, in, in interesting viewpoint for the, the whole panel in terms of what's happening um, kind of globally too because I'm, I'm well aware of some of the Canadian uh, companies, not quite brands, entering places like Germany and kind of disappointing the customer there uh, because of lack of quality product. California grows the best stuff currently and, and they can't send it anywhere. So, um, so it's been an interesting, uh, kind of rollout. Um, so, so, uh, Brian, I'm going to do the same here. Cue up your video and then, uh, we'll take it from there. Hello everyone. My name is Brian Sheng and I'm the CEO and founder of Asia Horizon. Asia Horizon is a holding company focused on the emerging cannabinoids industry in China. I'm very excited to be a panelist on today's 420 Summit, and thank you to Mark, Nan, and the rest of the 361 team for hosting this opportunity. Um, our thesis at a high level is that the cannabis legalization movement is a global movement. And following legalization in North America, South America, and into Europe, we believe that Asia is the next frontier. And as countries all over Asia start to understand the potential of the industry, they're all finding their own ways to approach legalization. The way to compare it is that China today in 2021 is very similar to what the North American industry looked like six to seven years ago. And I hope in my discussions I can help provide some insights into what's happening in the region and how investors are able to partake in the opportunity. Um, earlier last year, Asia Horizon has collaborated with the Artview Group to publish the first ever CBD and hemp industry-wide paper for China. I hope everyone has a chance to take a look at the paper we have published to understand the scale of the opportunity that we see. In the white paper, we approached industry experts, public company CEOs, regulators, up and down the cannabis supply chain and regulatory agencies to provide a comprehensive outlook at the state of the industry today. I'm looking forward to sharing more of my insight on the industry on the panel. See you then. Great. Thank you, Brian. And uh, not sure if you had any slides to share, but would love to get a better sense of exactly what you guys are up to in, in China and what you see as the opportunity there. Sure, sure. So I'm actually going to go off slides and just probably talk about uh, what's happening on the ground in China. Um, going a little bit deeper about Asia Horizon, like I uh, mentioned on the intro video, we're focused uh, on the cannabinoids industry in China. Um, there's two parts of our business. Um, the first part of our business is a processing business. Um, we hold one of 16 licenses, and, the, and, and we're the only American company to have been given a license by the Chinese government to process cannabinoids from hemp. Uh, and the second part of our business uh, is uh, we own our own proprietary direct-to-consumer brand uh, called UMA, uh, which we're launching in Hong Kong this month, as well as into China uh, later in the month as well. Um, so... You know, we, you know, given a little bit, actually taking a step backwards, you know, giving a little bit more about my background, um, you know, many in the 361 network, do, you know, does know about my background, but, um, I've been doing business across the United States and China for pretty much my entire career and, and looking at, you know, starting from the United States, you know, start investing in Canada's back in 2014, I saw a lot of the parallels that are, that are reminiscent, um, that are, that are starting to play out in China today, um, but at a much faster pace, um, 
One of the things that I draw on actually from actually Steve Burke's talk earlier today is really the methodical approach of the Chinese government when they look at something uh, that they see value in. And, and this is what has started to happen over the past three, four years, is that the Chinese government has put hemp into part of its national development plans, uh, more specifically into the provincial plans at the Yunnan and Heilongjiang level, where they said, we now understand there's a potential for hemp and that we need to divide the difference between drug cannabis and industrial cannabis. Um, I, I'm sure many people don't usually associate cannabis with, with China, but it's part of the government's plan to understand that we can actually make something useful in, from an industry perspective, create tax, create jobs, uh, some of the same things that are happening in, 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 in uh, countries around the world, the same reasons for legalization, except in this case, it's done in a way that um, you know, China can, can accept, which is no THC. And, and today, I guess I, I want to talk about a little bit uh, of the, you know, we, we talk a lot about legalization in the West, but I think that you know, the Eastern, in, the, in the Eastern region, there's a whole different, uh, uh, a whole different way of legalization that is happening, but one that actually is, is actually much more practical in nature. And I think China actually has one of the most practical frameworks for legalization in the sense that the government is very purposeful in how and why they're approaching legalization. And, and when we look at the menu, you know, when we look at the processing business, our, our thesis is that we don't see actually cannabis as a specialized industry. We, we simply see it as an ingredient business or, or an API business. And when we look at the global supply chain for where APIs and, and different types of ingredients are made, they're made in China. 60 to 90% of all of those ingredients are made in China. And, and we see it similarly that as the global supply chain develops over the next five to 10 years, as global CPG companies come in and are looking for uh, stable supplies, that's going to come from China. And, and, and the other part is also extremely obvious is, is there's 1.4 billion people in China that are now starting to, to, to become exposed to CBD products for the first time. Um, you know, there's a very specific reason where we chose Hong Kong as our first launch point, as I think is the perfect blend of East meets West, where if you go to Hong Kong today, um, it, it's, it's like going to East Village, uh, you know, and, and being able to see that CBD, uh, CBD shops are popping up everywhere. People, people want to have CBD, try CBD for the first time in a cafe shop. Uh, you know, maybe it's just like in East Village when, when they're, uh, the different hipster cafes started carrying CBD drops. Um, and, and even actually just recently, um, K11, which is, which is uh, for those of you that are familiar with New York, it's like the Hudson Yards uh, of, of Hong Kong, one of the most premier properties in Hong Kong, uh, just opened their first CBD shop uh, in, the mo in, the, in the most prime real estate uh, in, in the city. And so what we're seeing is, is, is that there are a lot of activity uh, where, you know, imagine a whole country that the, the, the regulatory reasons for, for banning a CBD is starting to uh, disappear. They're starting to be a more thought out framework. Um, actually in Hong Kong, there is a, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in Hong Kong, there's a very clear import, uh, uh, regime on what is allowed in the city, uh, what is allowed in the country, um, you know, with, with no CBN and no THC allowed, uh, COA produced and checked at, uh, customs. There's, there's very clear regulations that are starting to develop. Um, and, and those are the things that we look at and say, 
well, this is this is very interesting, and there's an opportunity that is that's here today. Now, the processing side and the global supply chain, I think, is more of a medium-term thesis, as that that needs to be built out, and the rest of the in, uh, rest of the global industry also is advancing towards maturity, whether that's the European market or the North American market. But I think those two areas represent very um, very large opportunities uh, in the coming years, um, and I think. This is, you know, talking about the capital markets for a second, I think this is also especially important because in the Western world, whether you're talking about New York or Canada or, or even the London Stock Exchange, Western investors have had exposure to cannabis over the past or well, since the start of the uh, legalization wave. But the entirety of Asia have pretty much uh, not had an opportunity to participate uh, in the growth of the industry, uh, except perhaps in the last <laughs> three years. And so, you know, imagine the imagine look at the, the financial markets uh, on the on the eastern side of the world. Understand local opportunities that represent a legitimate investment opportunities. I think that's something that is also very that is that is happening now. And there are more institutional funds starting to look at. Um, consumer brands in China, uh, I'll name a few, such as, you know, Simcare in China, they're, they're, uh, they're focused on CBD, and there's also Hong Kong brands, uh, that are focusing on CBD, such as, um, uh, Felix and Co., which is actually owned by Altum, uh, out of Australia. So, so we're seeing a lot of movements, um, and, and this is starting to prove out our thesis that we, you know, as we, as we started this journey about, Two and a half years ago, when when I was still at the Arcview Group, and we hosted the first ever cannabis conference in Hong Kong. You know, the short two and a half years ago, when we brought people over to Hong Kong, uh, the day after the conference, there was a picture of us on the front page of the South China Morning Post, uh, sort of mocking us that we were bringing illegal drugs to Hong Kong. Um, and 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 two and a half years later, you know, their CBD is shops are opening everywhere. It's legal. Um, you know. Young, uh, all kinds of consumers, young and old, uh, even actually special needs groups. Uh, I've been approached by many special needs groups uh, looking for CBD products. So these are the signs that, you know, were some of those same reasons that convinced me to join the cannabis industry back in 2014 uh, in the first place when I was an early investor in Ease. Uh, and, you know, we saw handwritten letters from some of the earliest medical patients uh, saying how much their lives were changed, being able to access medicine for the first time uh, through a convenient way. And, and I think those are some of the you know similarities that are really getting me excited. So um, yeah, so uh, that that's really a, a quick high level introduction on on what's going on in China. Um, but you know, let's not forget even about other Asian markets. I think many people don't know that Japan has one of the most vibrant uh, CBD markets uh, in Asia today. Um, if you can go into you know you go to Roppongi and you go to some of the most uh, uh, luxurious downtown areas of Japan, you can find CBD products, uh, $300, $400 a bottle uh, that are being sold in many different places. Um, and in Japan, I think this combines with the extremely harsh and difficult, stressful work culture in Japan that some of the, um, some of the benefits of CBD is something that's very attractive to, to the, uh, to the specific demographic. So, so these are some of the things that we're seeing in the region. Um, and, and, you know, I would encourage that when we look at Asia overall, you know, what what if, what if there's a whole different way of thinking about legalization where that might be about THC, might be about the source of the plant. Uh, what does that look like and how do we approach that today where we see the rest of the world legalizing and where do we plant our flags? Those are those are the sort of the, the questions we ask ourselves and, and figuring out where the opportunities are.
Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Um, and so I hope from the keynote speakers, everybody gets a sense that, you know, this is happening. This is happening at a global scale at, at various stages and, and different places are focusing on different um, uh, uh, parts of this uh, ecosystem. You know, for example, Europe is really focused on um, R&D and IP and it's early days there still. And they've got a medicinal program, but REC is, is going to be in the picture, I, I think, pretty soon in terms of what they're going to start talking about. Uh, Asia is, is focused on CBD and, and already has, you know, markets that are showing good traction. Um, and, and we, we talked also about kind of the public side of things. There's ways to, you know, given the, where valuations are, there's, there's ways to go long. There's ways to go long short. Um, you know, policies and, and regulatory changes are, uh, uh much more, um, uh, you know, uh, they have much more traction today than they did a couple of years ago. Um, so I'll, I'll just, uh, in the interest of time, I don't want to be too off schedule for the other speakers in case they have to run for other things. Uh, but Mark, did you have any questions from the audience you might have seen or any other uh, thoughts for the for the panelists? I was just thinking how great it is. I don't have to think. You, you get to curate everything, but then you threw me, threw me uh, out there. Just, um, making sure, just making sure you're still yeah, yeah. Uh, with us. Well, just, you know, just even the the panel, you've heard the other p- panelists. You know, you're here for a reason. You know, what any reflections on what you you've heard? You know, Tim, you went first. So anything that you've heard that uh, did you learn something today, or or do you disagree with something? Curious. Well, I think the the important part of almost every. Uh, every keynote here was rooted in the international nature of the industry that's evolving in a localized fashion. And, and so a lot of people ask me, Hey, are you investing hard in Europe? Are you investing hard in Asia? Um, are you investing, you know, us versus Canada? And I think they're, they're again, the, the, uh, the nature of the way the industry is evolving is very global. Latin America may be right. Uh, the most interesting, um, you know, Chris talked about also North Macedonia and, uh, you know, where economies of scale or efficiencies are going to ultimately win out in a world. We all, we all believe that this is a, uh, uh, it, you know, I think everybody believes they're building a brand, right? Um, and yet how many brand companies are there in the world that are some of the high end brands in any sector, you know, that are fully vertically integrated. So, um, that's just, you know, me saying I, I, I think there's enormous opportunities for investors to kind of pick their spots. And and I think it's important, though, every person here has, has uh, gotten into legislative and uh, political dynamics of what they do and how they assess it and how it's critical to the decisions that they make. So I think for the folks listening in um, outside the industry and assessing both investment and uh, assessing, you know, operational dynamics, um, you know, pick your jurisdiction and pick it right um, and make sure you, you can, uh, and that's both as an investor, you know, what, what you do, how you do it. Um, I think those are the things that I heard today that resonated most with me. Yeah, I would, I would, I guess I, I mean, I would, I would very much agree with, with what Tim just said there. I mean, it's a lot about understanding the dynamics of where you're looking. Like there are opportunities everywhere. Um, and it's really important to understand the, the dynamics, right, the political, regulatory, business dynamics of not only the country you're looking at, but also the region you're looking at and how that country fits into that region. Um, right, looking a few years ahead, uh, right, what's, 
what's you know really hot right now may not be you know may, may not be as lucrative a couple of years from now when new markets nearby open up. I mean, even just you know the dynamics of the United States. There was a great article uh, yesterday in Politico uh, about uh, you know border town dispensaries and how the you know the town of um, you know the small town out in in, in western uh, uh, Oregon uh, is you know is now getting nine percent of their um, you know, their annual tax revenue from their dispensaries, right, because they're all serving the Boise, Idaho community. But, you know, if you look out you know, five years from now, or hopefully Boise, it'll be legal there as well. And, right, you know, these, these, these stores are going to go back to, you know, being stores in a, in a, in a town of 10,000 people. And I think we need to look at everything sort of holistically that way as well, right? What are the, what are the opportunities today? What are the opportunities five years from now? Um, it was really great to hear Brian talk about what's happening in Asia. I think that conversation is largely overlooked, and yet you're talking about, you know, the region with literally the most people in the entire world. Um, and I think most of the cannabis community and the cannabis business community is largely overlooking what's happening there. But there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually personally an investor in in Asia Horizons because, you know, I, I believe in the team. And I guess that's the last takeaway here is, you know, especially when you're talking internationally. But I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a rule of thumb anywhere invested, right? You, you have to have confidence in the team that's ultimately running things, right? You might believe in the markets and the market dynamic and the opportunity. If you don't have a great team to execute it, um, right, you're probably not going to be successful. And then when you're talking about you know, other places around the world, particularly smaller countries, you know, really making sure that you've got a team that you can trust, that is well plugged in in that country, that understands those dynamics, um, and you know, and isn't you know, say you know, tied to you know, their 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 business fortunes are not tied to you know, their connections to one politician, uh, which we see that in some of these smaller countries, right? That would scare the heck out of me. Um, but that, you know, but that this is a really trustworthy team with deep ties to that business community um, that is able to execute on a plan that, you know, that is otherwise sound. Yeah, just 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 to wrap it up, I think it's exactly what Chris has said. You know, I would go the opposite direction and say that uh, looking at all the opportunities in cannabis, um, it's incredibly localized, especially international front. And if you're looking at an opportunity, you probably should ask Tim or Chris for introductions to the right team. It's an incredibly small community. And, you know, I think it's getting to become what, you know, uh, the 2.0 and 3.0 where there are more executives joining. But at the same time, it, it requires such depth of knowledge, not just within cannabis, but in broader, uh, you know, just, you know, whether it's talking about China or Colombia or Germany, any of these markets that are opening it, it just requires so much both cross-disciplinary experience, but then also cannabis specifically. So, you know, I think uh, being able to to, to understand where the players, the right teams, that's that's super important. And I think the segue Chris had about Oregon uh, feeding Idaho might be a good segue to Dashida and and her panel. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for the keynote speakers. Really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, all the insights. And so I'm going to transition over to the next panel. Apologies for the bit of a delay here, but, um, I'm going to run this panel slightly differently. I'm going to start off with actually Dashida. So it's not going to be an order of appearance, but, um, uh, and, and, and feel free, um, also, uh, as, as the panelists get introduced here to, uh, chime in. But what I'm going to do here is play the intro videos for, uh, Dashida. Uh, uh, for, uh, Lori and for, um, Howard actually first and then, uh, Steve and then David Engel. And, and the reason for me doing that is, um, I want to have some folks that are kind of panelists and then others who are highlighting a specific thing they're involved with, um, so that we can have some, some great conversation uh, around that. So, 
Um, I'm going to play uh, the intro video first for for Deshita and introduce her, um, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Let me just do that up. And as you as we go through these panels, by the way, feel free to um, uh, start to ask your questions in the chat. And uh, Mark, if you could help, just kind of curate that and uh, uh, and, and see if there's any uh, questions coming through. I'd appreciate that. Now here is uh, Hi. Here's Dashita's video right now. I'm Dashita Dawson, and I'm the Cannabis Program Supervisor for the Office of Community and Civic Life at the City of Portland in Oregon. And in this role, I oversee all of the regulatory licensing, compliance, education, and equity initiatives for the city's legal cannabis program. I'm super excited to be joining a powerhouse group of speakers for the 420 Cannabis Summit hosted by Bar Capital and 361 Firm. So just to share a little bit about myself, I'm a corporate to cannabis crossover, having led transformative business units for companies like Target and Victoria's Secret. I crossed over into the industry five years ago as a senior executive consultant, business strategist, and thought leader for multiple cannabis operations, municipalities, special interest groups, and media outlets. Um, I can honestly say from seed to solution, I have seen every aspect of the cannabis industry, and it led me to actually become an author of a best-selling workbook, How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry. But if I'm being real, I joined the industry as a cannabis patient first, and therefore I joined with a mission to legitimize and to stabilize and to diversify the legal cannabis industry. So while my work as the cannabis program supervisor is in Oregon, my cannabis equity advocacy has been global. I'm Brooklyn born, Jersey educated, so I'm most proud of the work that I've been doing on the ground in New York and New Jersey to support legalization, but my work to date and legislative testimony has impacted um, the legalization movement for a number of states across the country. I can honestly say that my leadership and influence is at an intersection of cannabis science, business, policy, and education. And with that in mind, I'm working on a number of public private partnerships, including a White House-supported cannabis education initiative. I'm looking forward to sharing more at the upcoming summit. I hope to see you there. But if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Tashita Dawson, or reach out to learn more about that White House-supported initiative through the 361 app. I'll see you there. Great. Thank you for that intro, Tashita. And so the theme for this panel really is why we're at version 3.0, as Tim had mentioned, uh, in the cannabis industry, it takes time. It takes experience. It takes folks coming in from other industries that develop it. And so I'll let Tashita go next and kind of just talk um, from the perspective of what that uh, private to public uh, transition is like and what the city of Portland as a uh, as, as a environment is like on the cannabis front. Um, and then I'll kind of transition into uh, Lori and, and, and the other panelists. And, and I'll end with David, who's uh, more experience on and directly experience on the cultivation side because I, I want to show kind of uh, the different um, levels of evolution of, of how uh, experience builds in this industry and uh, you know advocacy and, and all the angles that are involved and consulting and, and getting uh, businesses up to the right level to, to excel in this space. So please go ahead, Dashita, and, and kind of tell us more about your involvement with the city of Portland in particular because. We've got a federal sense from, from Chris, especially earlier. Uh, would love to know what the local uh, sense is um, on, on how cannabis is treated. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, there's been a, a lot of, of local and state um, communication at the federal level. So um, what, I, what we do know at the local and state level, we're setting the precedent. Um, and part of the reason why I transitioned into the industry um, is really about changing the laws. Um, and after I started working with a number of municipalities um, as a consultant, um, I, I realized that I wanted to transition into a government role um, so that I could actually test some of my assumptions, um, things that uh, I think a lot of analysts are debating about as far as the industry is concerned, and seeing what happens in the implementation stage. Because um, oftentimes the laws are written, um, and they may mean well, some may not, um, but oftentimes they're not always implemented as expected. Um, I wanted to highlight, and some of the uh, previous speakers spoke about this, some of the big uh, topics that are uh, changing the business landscape and therefore the investment landscape as we think about it from um, a policy and, and, and regulation perspective. Obviously, we all know about the Safe Banking Act, so I won't belabor that. Um, it is something that um, our uh, state representative, Blumenhauer, we've been seeing the impact of uh, a cash-heavy business in Portland um, with a lot of uh, crime associated with uh, um, the uh, protests and like, and um, between uh, just generally being high risk and the unusual times that we've been under with COVID um, and protests, it's been more acute. Um, and so we see the, the risk that uh, happens as a result of uh, not having, um, uh, you know, cash access. And this is operational risk, but also investment risk as a result. Um, but another area that we've been talking about really uh, intentionally in Oregon is about the um, lack of sense around the trifurcated regulatory system. And so it was great to hear Brian talk about the impact of hemp, the impact of CBD, because hemp is cannabis too. Um, I have a degree in molecular biology, so it's been really interesting to see how the government has trifurcated hemp government and regulation, medical cannabis government and regulation and adult use. And in Oregon, we've been definitely talking about how to bring that all under one office. And New York is sort of setting a precedent because its Office of Cannabis, Cannabis Management is the first regulatory framework that actually does house all three, um, putting hemp cannabinoids specifically in that same, um, in that same framework. So what that means is, is that whereas in the past we were very, very separated from what you were doing maybe on um, the high THC or marijuana side um, from what you're doing on the hemp side, when we say that you need to think about it in a whole plant perspective um, in terms of the policies coming down the pipe, I definitely think that that's something worthwhile. And a lot of the brands in the space are starting to really do exactly that. You can create a national brand using hemp-based CBD, um, but be located in a high THC legalized markets, medical or adult use, and extend your brands to have THC-infused products. So um, we're, we're already seeing that happen across the country, but I definitely think New York set a precedent on this idea of why are we regulating them all separately. Um, there's also the importance of the legacy market. So Oregon is one of the open markets. It isn't a forced competition where you have to buy into the market. Um, some folks have some debate about whether or not that has made the, uh, the, the, the market not as, uh, as, as, as viable as far as investment. I happen to believe it grows the best flower in the country, haven't visited all of the legal markets. Um, but I definitely think that in the space of Oregon, what we learned is that equity um, and in the legacy market are kind of going hand in hand in some way. 
but we've also missed out in the legal market. You're not going to see a multi-billion dollar um, existing economy of, uh, you know, uh, uh, supply and demand disappear or completely be eradicated without uh, some sort of acknowledgement and integration of it. So um, I definitely one of the forefront thought leaders about this idea of um, really understanding legacy market dynamics um, as you are investing. And don't assume that just because it's weed, right, a lot of people believe that, that it's going to sell. Um, we're seeing a lot of MSOs struggle with that, um, especially since it tends to also be the crux of why there isn't necessarily enough equity in the industry. Um, the other uh, fourth thing that I will call out is that cannabis is inherently medicinal. And so in the statute within Oregon, cannabis is supposed to be treated like medicine, but it isn't in so many ways. And I think that that is um, uh, the mistake of a lot of markets when they're rushing into adult use. Uh, we see that that transition isn't always um, as expected, and most of the revenue expectation for the state of a local level is below the bar. Um, uh, some some states have really messed it up in terms of Washington uh, losing it completely, and some like New York are recognizing that they need to expand uh, the medical market. Uh, if you're not penetrating uh, enough of the people who are literally going to the doctor right now for the ailments that can be resolved with cannabis, then the idea of being able to roll out a successful adult use market is a lot further ahead. Um, so re really recognizing as an investor that it's inherently medicinal, there are multiple pharmaceutical um, drugs and markets that this will disrupt, and, and, and that will always be the case, whether it's an adult use market or whether it's a medical uh, regulatory uh, structure. The government and the legislation does not dictate the use uh, the consumer does. Last thing I'll end with is education. We're also seeing a bit of a dearth in the pipeline, right? Like we have these people who are like myself, corporate to cannabis crossover. Um, I happen to be a patient. So I also uh, have a little bit more knowledge and I'm like a biologist. It means that I'm bringing science based. But I do think that um, we don't have this pipeline coming from uh, the youth that are really understanding cannabis is different. And so the sustainability of the industry is always being questioned as the government level. Um, are we educating people enough? The answer is no. And so I'll end with the Cannabis Health Equity Movement, or CHEM, uh, has launched a first White House-supported uh, National Cannabis Education Initiative. And this is intended to be public-private partnership to do so. Um, we have a lot of big companies, and it's, I think it's okay to think that we're going to have corporate sector crossover, there's still an education gap, and then how do we fill in on the back end? Cannabis has such an uh, impact across multiple disciplines, and so our goal with the global campus is that we can partner with uh, municipalities at the local level as well as HBCUs, minority-serving institutions, tribal institutions, college and uh, state and community college colleges in order for us to really educate and fill in the gap on the pipeline. Um, I think that that's something that the United States is looking at, um, and I'm not sure that we're as caught up as places like Israel and Germany, um, but I think that right now we're starting to see the discussion at least around hemp, because again, hemp competency is cannabis competency. I'll end there. Um, I, I hope that that has been helpful in some of the insights from the regulatory um, perspective. Absolutely. No, thank you. Appreciate that. Your video and that was very, very uh, educational for, for all of us. And thank you for your work in New Jersey. Mark and I are both residents and appreciate your efforts. <laughs> um, so I'm going to I'm going to share uh, Lori uh, Kibbe's uh, video next. Uh, and then, you know, we're going to circle back uh, towards the end. Uh, but um, I'll 
queue up the video here and then um, we'll turn it over to Lori. Hi, this is Lori Kibbe, the CFO and co-founder of King's Garden, one of the largest cannabis cultivation, indoor cultivation companies in the state of California, and also the co-founder and board chair for Andourage, a Colorado-based company that is committed to making clinical grade products from hemp. Um, King's Garden, uh, most importantly, I think is what everyone's interested in, or at least in the cannabis business. Um, my expertise in the past is in real estate development and having been now in the cannabis business for the last six years, uh, we've grown our company from uh, zero revenue to just over hundred million uh, this year, uh, last year and uh, on our target to do 300 million uh, by 2023. I am, I think, probably become an expert or at least close as expert can be in understanding what companies will make it, what companies won't, what are the key things to look for when making an investment in the cannabis space, and understanding um, how to evaluate companies where they are in their growth cycle. My uh, contact information is laurie, L-A-U-R-I, at kingsgardeninc.com. And I look forward to speaking with all of you on Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you, Lori, for the intro video. And so I'll pose this question so so our audience can understand better. You you were part of uh, something from inception to now where you know where things are, and and especially from the perspective. And it's great to get uh, you know diverse representation here from the industry. But could you talk through some of the key challenges? You know, being based in California from those early days to where you're at now and your role in that in that growth. Certainly, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, King's Garden actually started as 11 separate companies um, because we uh, initially were formed or our different uh, companies were formed during the medical um, collective re- regulation, the regulatory environment. <clears throat> so we operated as uh, cultivators for various collectives. Uh, when recreational was passed, we ended up merging all of those 11 companies and our investors um, into the one company, the predecessor to King's Garden, Inc. And at the same time, we did our last raise. We did a friends and family round in that merger. So 11 companies went into one, King's Garden LLC, and then became King's Garden, Inc. <clears throat> I think that the most important um aspect of that is we feel like we're very nimble in responding to regulatory change here in California. We have about 200 investors, so we manage them as well. We've always raised privately. We haven't had to raise any funds since 2018 because we're cash flow positive and also profitable. I guess the two go together, not always, but in our case, they do. Um, I've listened to many of the speakers, and I appreciate all of the insights a couple of the things that we have learned or we believe matter, King's Garden is an indoor cultivator, and our focus is um, building a brand. Cannabis is a product, but really the most important thing is a brand. We're in the middle of licensing in various states across the United States. Um, and we believe the ca- uh, California market speaks to the sophistication and the ultimate sophistication of all cannabis users. And from that perspective, we focus on quality. Um, my overall experience is um, in looking at what's happening in California is that everyone thinks they can grow cannabis, but growing really quality cannabis is very, very difficult. And to do it on a mass scale, on a consistent scale, is even more difficult. 
And so coming up with the procedures and the uh, processes for doing so is critical to a long-term success. Uh, and then building around that quality, um, your brand becomes very, very important. Um, I think that the consumer is underestimated in their level of sophistication. Um, and I've, I've heard kind of different views on it this morning. <clears throat> Here in California, we believe the consumer does know the difference. And it's not just um, how it smells, how it looks, <clears throat> and um, the content of it. All three of those become important. Uh, it's not just the high. It's the type of high, even. And then from a medical perspective, the content becomes very important as well. What is the content of the cannabinoids, not just the THC? Um, and then finally, I think um, understanding really the infrastructure costs and coming up, uh, which is supported in your systems of growth. Um, we are counter MSO. Um, <laughs> we had an opportunity to, to participate in kind of the expansion across the United States and chose not to. We felt that we would be better served in building a brand locally, building a large market acceptance, and then building off of that by partnering um, with the infrastructure in other states. Um, we've always believed that a legalization is um, coming, and it was a matter of timing. And so being prepared for that um, by having a strong, profitable company with a strong brand identity was the way to be prepared not to be in every state um, and use hundreds of millions of dollars to build that infrastructure. Um, just as an understanding, we've been able to build our entire company on only um, $55 million of uh, equity. So we last year, as I mentioned, did $100 million or just under $100 million, uh, of revenue, and we have a 29% EBITDA. So that's just speaking to the how well we, we believe we've done. Um, I'm also involved in a hemp-based business that's doing clinical-grade um, uh, formulations. And, again, we believe that the hemp market's been uh, – the consumer has been um, – is going to get smarter. And the quality of hemp that's out there, the isolate, we believe, is not is, – is something that is going to go away, and people are going to understand the power of whole flower. I think it's the same with the cannabis market. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. Um, I hope – I'm happy to answer any questions, but – Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I thank Jen Basick for referring you and, and including you in the panel. Uh, and so I'll, I'll turn it over to Jen. I think she had a, a question, actually. Yeah, actually, I saw a question in the chat that's now sparking a lot of conversation. So, Lori, if the critical farming is in California, what are the opportunities or the barriers to farming in the former tobacco company? You had answered in the chat while you were talking, several people started weighing in. So I thought maybe this is something you could elaborate on for the group. Well, I mean, cannabis plant is a soil cleaner. You know, it will absorb whatever's in the soil. And so what we've observed in, um, in growing is that if you have ground full of pesticides, your plant will, you know, absorb. It's a great soil cleaner. So tobacco farming, my understanding, and I am by no means understand tobacco farming, but I can't imagine they didn't use pesticides. So you have to understand what's in the soil and what's going to be in your cannabis plant when it's harvested after having grown in that soil. And I think that it can take a couple of years for it to clean out that soil, which would be amazing. But when you think about the after product, the, the end product, you want to make sure it's clean, it's consumer safe. 
And that is going to be a difficult achievement, uh, something difficult to achieve if you're growing it in, in, in highly pesticide soils. So. Thank you, Lori. Really appreciate your uh, thoughts and insights. Um, I'm going to uh, stick to the cultivation piece, actually, and, and move along to David Engel next, um, who who's in, in a similar space. Um, and I'll, I'll run the video uh, as we've been doing and then circle back to uh, to David. One second here. My name is David Engel. I'm managing director of Full Moon Investments. Um, website www.fullmooninvestments.com. Oh. Uh, my email is david at fullmooninvestments.com and my telephone number direct dial cell is 404-993-7077. We've been implementing on uh, uh, the campus space again since 2013. Our staff uh, is highly experienced uh, dating back to, to the early days of Oregon Cannabis in 2002 and 2006, our cultivation and laboratory processing staff. Um, so, you know, what we like to say is we're highly experienced, and experience to, to us is having screwed stuff up. Okay, we've screwed everything you can screw up one, at least once, but we do keep a list of those screw-ups and we don't do them again. And so that's what, in the cannabis space, I believe, defines experience as mistakes. Uh, we are presently implementing in Massachusetts uh, on an active investment uh, in a very good market there. And then we also are implementing on our licenses that we were awarded in Spain and Malta. We expect, uh, we expect the, we're very excited about the European market with 740 addressable uh, population uh, and fast uh, convergence to medical and recreational cannabis in the next uh, several years. Uh, we expect our planting date with our cannabis in our 1.6 million square feet class greenhouse facilities that we bought last summer. Uh, we expect to plant uh, in May of 2021, next month, and are very excited to tell you guys about that. Thank you for the uh, for the time today and listening to the recording and also the presentation. Thank you very much. David, if you're there, yeah, I'll, I know you've got some slides here um, that I'll queue up, but please, uh, please elaborate a little bit more on because we were talking about Europe earlier. So please elaborate more on um, what you're doing there in particular and, and what, what you see as the opportunity. Uh, you're on mute, mute right now, David. There we go. Okay. Great. Thanks a lot. Um, would you like to play the videos first? Or? Sure. Let me let me cue that up while you kind of talk through um, how you got involved uh, in the Spain part. Yeah. So we, you know, I fell into the cannabis space in 2013 in Washington D.C. I was in some gentleman's office, and they said, "Hey, we want you to help us with other businesses." So what's that? And they said, "Medical cannabis." Or they, they call it marijuana back then, or pot. And uh, uh, he's setting a bit. Go ahead and play the video. This is a facility we just bought last summer in Spain from the bankruptcy court. Um.
Yeah. I'll uh, I'll pause there so people okay. can have a sense of that one. Yeah. So um, what we did was um, we found out about a, um, a troubled rose company uh, just north of Madrid uh, in Soria, Spain, uh, called Alea Roses. Those roses they were growing and we grew for some time are actually the you know finest rose cultivar in the world. You know, long and short of it. Uh, sort of good idea, bad execution and plan, uh, bad marketing. And that company, uh, you know, invested over a hundred million dollars between those facilities and starting that company and, and uh, find themselves way into bankruptcy court. So we found out about the bankruptcy court was auctioning, um, holding a sealed bid auction for uh, buying those facilities that you just saw. Which is- and, and David, so if you could focus on the cannabis part, what, what exactly are you folks doing there and, and kind of what is your expertise on cultivating? Sure. So, you know, we've been uh, doing cannabis for school, made a lot of mistakes, uh, and we just cross them off, don't pick them twice. We acquired these facilities. We applied for cannabis licensure in Spain uh, against all odds, I guess, as I look back and didn't realize how long a shot it was. We were awarded uh, the, the license of the, the authorization to plant. We have converted those facilities uh, to uh, cannabis facilities, and um, and uh, we are in the final stages of um, of getting inspected uh, by the medical agency in Spain, and we intend to plant our cannabis, our first crops, in, in May next next month, uh, as soon as they inspect us. We, we invited them out last Thursday, and. Um, uh, they're going to show up any day now to inspect us. Once they inspect us, check our security, they're going to allow us to plant. So we're going to be planting uh, in those facilities for medical cannabis. Uh, what are some of the um, challenges you've had in the cultivation part? Uh, and, and perhaps it's not specific to Europe, but interested in kind of you, you've been doing this for some time. Interesting some of the um, issues you've had as you've tried to scale up cultivation operations. Well, you know, there's about a thousand things that could go wrong in the cultivation of cannabis. Uh, we've, we've eliminated about 900 of them that we found. But, you know, any, anything from not having the proper facilities and equipment, uh, environmental controls, uh, not equipping things properly, you know, we might have humidity problems or mold or, you know, as the previous speaker said, you know, pesticides in our product or not, not pesticides, uh, contaminants in our product. Um, you know, things like that, that sort of if you uh, don't start at this thing right with your facilities and your uh, upfit, uh, a lot of people try to, you know, go on a shoestring budget and, and not get the proper facilities, proper controls. You know, cannabis is, you know, especially indoor growing or even greenhouse growing, it's about controlling your environmental conditions, controlling your, your medium you're growing in and all the fertigation, irrigation, the water system. The whole uh, soup to nuts, because ultimately it does go in the product, as your previous speaker said. So we've just learned uh, that you got to do it right, and uh, we're doing it right at these facilities in Spain. We, we've invested a lot of money in uh, certain types of equipment to adjust those facilities. For example, dehumidification equipment, um, you know, um, blackout shades, and, and then also a lot of the post-harvest equipment that, that we've invested good money on to do it right. So we're, uh, you know, fast uh, coming online uh, in Spain, and uh, we, we intend to, we're also concurrently developing and building out our laboratory facilities in Malta, where we will 
uh, shipped from Spain, import to Malta, to laboratory process, um, uh, to finish medical cannabis products, including finishing the flower in Malta to a manicured bug. And our, our marketing plan is um, to distribute throughout the EU and medical cannabis programs, which we see uh, sort of along the lines that are developing very rapidly uh, into rec markets. Uh, Germany's expected to uh, possibly come online with rec this year. Um, um, the, the UK has a medical program now, Ireland, Scotland, um, you know, uh, Switzerland, Israel, uh, Italy. These are all programs that are uh, sort of gravitating, as we did in the States early on, where they allow certain conditions and certain concentrations of THC for limited conditions, and they start expanding. You know, it just starts loosening up. And then and then there's talk of legalization. The French Fed president just came out and said that he wants to legalize cannabis in, in, in France, for example. So we're seeing that gravitational, you know, pull Towards, towards legalization, both medical initially, but then pretty, pretty quickly moving to, uh, recreational cannabis. And it's just like, think about Germany for a minute. We talk about California. We got 40 million people in California. Well, there's 83 million people in Germany. So it's a population. It's a addressable market. If that goes wreck, we got two Californians, right? In one country. And so the countries, because of the federal law being one law and not having these conflicting things with the states, we think the the, uh, the the gravitational pull towards you know medical and then recreation is going to happen much faster in Europe, and we think it's faster than most people realize at this point. Thank you, David. Um, in the interest of time, I got to keep things going because we're uh, sure. one panel behind in timing. But appreciate that view on Europe. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just go with uh, the video. Here I would just say. Oh, you can go with what video? I'm sorry, sorry. Go, go, go ahead, David. You, you, yeah, I was just going to say I encourage people to reach out to me. The contact information is on the video. Uh, if you have an interest in participating with us, we, we, we think we have one of the best things going right now. Uh, as far as facilities, those are, you know, 68 million U.S. dollar facilities, brand new. They're only four years old. Um, you know, we've got a jump start on that, and uh, we got we got the proper licensure, proper setup. We're in it uh, to make money and to get to revenues, revenues quick. That's what our game is. We expedite things and get cannabis licenses moving and, and, and to revenues quickly. That's our special set. We're expediters. Go ahead. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, next up here, we've got uh, Steve Kammerling from uh, CRB Monitor. I'm going to play the video and do the same uh, same format. Hello, my name is Steve Kemmerling. I am the founder and CEO of CRB Monitor. You can email me at steve at crbmonitor.com or visit our website, crbmonitor.com, to learn more and or email me directly. As a former investment banker, I wanted to build the Capital IQ or SNL Financial covering the cannabis industry, so I founded CRB Monitor in 2014. Since then, I've developed the largest, most comprehensive database of generally private, direct cannabis-related businesses, including their licensing, ownership, and location information of those CRBs in the U.S. and Canada. Today, our database has over 45,000 direct cannabis-related businesses, 72,000 owners, and over 100,000 licenses. Additionally, we've developed the largest database of publicly traded CRBs that goes well beyond the standard list of 30 or 40 publicly traded companies. Today, this data set includes over 1,300 unique issuers and over 1,500 unique issuances globally. 
Generally, our financial, uh, generally our clients are financial institutions, banks, credit unions, broker dealers, and custodian banks who use our data to understand, identify, manage cannabis-related opportunities and risk. They use our data to diligence and monitor known cannabis-related relationships. More recently, we've been showing capital providers, including investors and investment bankers, how they can utilize our data to identify potential investment opportunities. Lastly, we're developing a cannabis lending platform to facilitate more normalized, standardized commercial lending with CRBs. As an existing established vendor to banks and credit unions, our platform helps both the banks and the CRBs to decrease speed, time, and risk to cannabis-related lending. Again, you can visit our website, crbmonitor.com, or email me directly at steve at crbmonitor.com to learn more. Thank you. Great, Steve. Um, I'm going to queue up uh, Howard uh, next as well in his video. But uh, real quick to you, in terms of looking at the market as you have for the last several years, what what have you seen in terms of um, data trends? You know, the licensure, uh, the expansion of of operations in in new uh, geographies. Could you comment a little bit uh, more on on how your data set is, has been expanding on that front? Yeah, and, and thanks for letting me post that riveting video of myself. <laughs> so, so sorry everyone had to watch that uh, right off the script. Um, you know, I've, I've been running CRB Monitor since 2014, so I mean, it it pretty much goes without saying. I think back then there was I don't know eight or nine states, uh, five thousand uh, direct, and I am going to use the word marijuana related businesses because my banks care about marijuana versus hemp versus CBD, but this stuff with THC. So we're about 45,000, you know, of those entities now. Um, so it's just, you know, over a hundred thousand licenses for the businesses and the owners. So it's, it's not insignificant. And that's, that's just the U S and Canada. So obviously we're always tracking new states. Um, I was just updating my map for, you know, Georgia and North Dakota, South Dakota, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, it goes without saying there's just a, a plethora of data to manage and track and, and hopefully package in a way that's useful for uh, institutional users. Thank you. And I apologize since we're running late, I'm going to um, go to the next video and then open it up for a question for both you, you and uh, Howard, so we can make up on a little bit of time here. Um, let me just queue up Howard Schachter here uh, and I'll play the video. Hey there, I'm Howard Schachter. I'm a corporate communications executive who specializes in helping well-funded companies build and amplify compelling and differentiating narratives for the sake of investors, regulators, employees, media, and all other stakeholders. Most recently, I've spent the past couple of years in the cannabis space, leading the role of communications for leading multi-state operator Acreage Holdings. Prior I worked with similarly positioned companies in CPG, retail, advertising, marketing, sports, and entertainment, including Facebook, McDonald's, Spotify, Lev Nation, and others. I'm thrilled to be participating in the Cannabis Summit. Look forward to meeting everybody. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please do so on LinkedIn at Howard Schachter or at HowardSchachter at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Looking forward to the summit. Thank you, Howard. And if you could talk about um, communication, is you know your your especially what 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 do younger cannabis companies miss on that front versus more developed companies, um, and and kind of 
how do you advise younger companies on, on, on that front of communicating? Boy, that is a uh, terrific question. And first off, thanks for having me and happy for 2-0 day to everybody. I don't think anybody recognized the, the milestone of the day yet. Um, so what do I advise? Well, communications, um, communications is a very broad term. And what I find in talking to entrepreneurs, CEOs every day or investors thinking about investing in them is really crystallizing what does communications mean. And it's not just about the press release that announces an offering or a close or a product introduction. It's a lot more than that. And thinking about the full spectrum of what communications is supposed to truly mean as a thread throughout an organization internally and externally is really critical. That is not generally thought about as early in the lifespan of a company as it should be. I'm going to put up on my screen. I, I hope I can handle this from a technology perspective. Um, I wanted to put up on the screen what I actually mean here. Um, can everybody see that? Or are you looking at my? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. You saw the PowerPoint? Uh, yeah. Now we yeah. can see the PowerPoint. Yeah. So, so very, very briefly, when we think about communications in cannabis, but truly any organization, that is going public or is public, growing by leaps and bounds, and generally is consumer-facing. When we think about communications, it's these two sides of the spectrum. There's CorpCom, which is really about corporate reputation, which is about developing the compelling story that will make sense with some fine-tuning for each of the stakeholders across investors, media, regulators, and so importantly, employees, so that every single employee from receptionist on up to the C-suite, can talk about, you know, we're going to the moon, sir, as the janitor at NASA told President Kennedy a couple of decades ago. But it's also internal comms. It's how to integrate an acquisition or a plug-and-play capability into a company so everybody is fully aligned on the story. Um, It's about crisis uh, and, God forbid, moments at the national or local level. It's about using earned media to tell your story, be it top-tier business or trade media. Um, it's strong partnership with other functional heads, government affairs, investor relations, HR, to ensure that the story is consistent across across the organization. It's using top-level uh, C-suiters and functional heads for thought leadership that will have a halo effect down to the organization and it's also management and, and assimilation of message across corporate channels um, and uh, social channels and the website. That is very different than the other side of the equation, brand marketing PR, which collaborates with marketing on getting consumers and or patients into the funnel and keeping them there time and again satisfied and happy. And you do that through effectively launching products, dispensary or other facility openings, how to leverage a sponsorship in the right compelling way, building news events from scratch that the media will pay attention to, focused on consumer media that your consumers care about, building the toolbox for facilities at the local level so they've got plug-and-play templates and such um, uh, to, to generate their own press if they need to. And then, of course, as I said, it's, it's joining at the hip with CMO. And, and the marketing team. Too often, younger companies will go short shrift on the spend here 
and either hire a manager who specializes in brand marketing and thinking they can do the other side or corporate and thinking they can do the other side and neither gets done particularly well. So if there's one message I can bring to those folks that are running businesses is elevate your thinking about communications and to investors of those businesses, ask questions about how the companies are thinking about comms um, and you'll get a strong sense of their savviness about delivery of their message to the right audiences. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate that. Um, in the interest of time and because uh, Mark is messaging me, I got to speed things up here uh, because we're a little behind. I'm going to run the videos for all the next panelists um, and uh, and then we'll circle back with specific questions um, to, to those panelists and, and open up for discussion. But I appreciate the last panel uh, and all the perspectives you've provided. Um, and I'm going to uh, start queuing up the videos now for the for the next set. Starting with Maddox Svensson from L2V notice, Cap. Notice how he threw me under the bus there. Really, yeah. really well, I was, I was, I was hoping you'd stepped away to, to, to take a break or something. So, uh, let me, let me, uh, play this clip now. My name is Maddox Swenson. I'm the founder and general partner of L2 Ventures. We focus on investments in high growth companies within the cannabis industry, primarily in the technology and infrastructure verticals, as well as branded consumer products companies. Our current portfolio includes LeafLink, the country's largest B2B marketplace that connects nearly 6,000 retail cannabis dispensaries with nearly 2,000 cannabis-branded products companies and facilitates north of 40% of total wholesale cannabis commerce in the country. Our second portfolio company is Caliper Foods, Caliper Foods makes cannabinoid formulations for food and beverage, and they have a popular consumer brand called Caliper CBD, which is a water-soluble THC powder that has 5 to 10x the absorption of traditional formats such as oil-soluble or oil tinctures. Uh, fourth portfolio company is uh, Stillwater Brands. Uh, this is a sister company to Caliper Foods, which operates uh, a similar business in the THC vertical. Over the next 12 to 24 months. Our third uh, portfolio company is Celebre. Uh, Celebre is a company that focuses on building technology to produce cannabinoids, CBD, THC, CBG, and others via biosynthesis and fermentation. Uh, if anyone has any interest in learning more about L2V, I'd be happy to connect. Thank you, uh, Maddox. I'm going to queue up next uh, the video for Kevin. If I can, uh, there we go. Kevin O'Brien from Marsh. My name is Kevin O'Brien. I work with Marsh McLennan. Uh, I am the. Think, I think the audio on that's a little um, uh, hard Kevin. to hear. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let Kevin uh, speak for himself and give the intro. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin O'Brien with Marsh, um, based in Portland, Oregon. I run the U.S. cannabis um, practice here, the early parts of the U.S. cannabis practice at Marsh. Uh, I work with uh, you know startups through MSO. Oh. Uh, and, um, you know, we help on risk management and, uh, you know, kind of insurance initiatives. Obviously, it's a very tight market. Um, so we try to leverage our kind of scale and breadth uh, as much as a global organization to, 
you know, try to help in the evolution and efficiency of the insurance marketplace. Uh, and given the nature of the business and my connection here, I, I do a lot of kind of connecting on, on the capital side as well. So I'll pause there. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate that. Um, I'm going to keep going with the intro parts and then I'll open it up for a question at the end. Hello, all. My name is Matt Barron, and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of 1212 Ventures. We are exclusively focused on the cannabis space and believe that brands carry the greatest opportunity to deliver long-term shareholder value. We maintain a strategic partnership with a specific cannabis company called Cookies, a leading international cannabis brand. Our fund invests exclusively in Cookies, as well as brands, businesses, and technologies that are accretive to cookies. We believe that our unique relationship with cookies offers our investors a, a competitive advantage and look forward to learning more about you all and seeing if there's ways to work together best. Thank you, Matt, for that intro video. And then Shanita, um, I don't think you had a chance to send us the video, but if, I see you're on the line. So if you don't mind giving a quick uh, intro to yourself and, and your background. Sure thing. Good afternoon, everyone. Happy 420. Uh, my name is Shanita Penny. My background is in supply chain management, IT project management. I got into the space to support uh, entrepreneurs going through the licensing process. Uh, I quickly in got involved in uh, policy uh, advisory and, and advocacy. I led the Minority Cannabis Business Association for over two years um, and testified before Congress as it relates to the role of small business in the cannabis industry. So today, what I am doing is continuing to support uh, small businesses, our MSOs, um, as well as municipalities and state governments that are either creating or improving our state programs. I am also supporting a recently launched coalition uh, to inform federal policy. Our, our coalition is made up of non-cannabis um, corporate entities, uh, Brinks, uh, Constellation Brands, uh, Altria. Uh, we are looking to really get the best perspectives uh, and varied perspectives as we really push the ball downfield in a final push for legalization, if not uh, this year in the next two to three uh, so excited to be here having this conversation. And uh, if you are looking to get in contact with me, please find me on LinkedIn or at www.buddingsolutions.net. Thank you, Shanita. Appreciate it. And so I'll open this up to the panel um, uh, to kind of take a look at it. And this is a topic that kind of connects uh, most, most of the backgrounds. But in terms of, you know, and I'll start with Maddox, actually, uh, in terms of what's happening in the uh, cannabis tech space. Could you just give a quick overview of, of how you think things have changed over the last, uh, you know, couple of years or so? Uh, and then I'd like any other panelists to comment on what they've seen in terms of uh, development. We haven't really touched on cannabis tech. And, um, so in the, in the tech and picks and shovels piece, uh, would love to tie in, uh, these panelists on, on what you're kind of seeing developing in, in, in cannabis tech and, 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 you know, how, how that's impacting the industry. Maybe just add, and where you see it going, short term, long term. And you're on mute, Maddox. All right, there we go. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me. Happy to share some thoughts. Um, you know, the size of the cannabis technology universe is quite large, so I'll try to simplify it um, as best I can. Um, 
In terms of kind of where we were called four or five years ago, um, you know, you had a lot of uh, more inefficiency in the marketplace than you did today. Um, you had a, a dearth of technology companies that could serve the industry. And so you saw, you know, the emergence of companies that were solving pain points that weren't really pain points in traditional industries, but given, you know, the illegality of this industry, you saw companies popping up that, um, you know, uh, helped with payments, helped with supply chain efficiency, um, helped kind of, you know, solve a specific pain point within a specific part of the value chain. Um, ultimately, you know, we've come a long way over the last three or four years where we're starting to see consolidation across the technology landscape in the form of, you know, larger platform type businesses. Um, you know, some of the, the names that you guys are probably familiar with, Weed Maps, which, you know, went public via SPAC, LeafLinks, another kind of scale platform, Dutchy, Jane on the e-commerce and ordering side, um, Leafly is another one that has, you know, a long, um, you know, 10-year history of providing information to the marketplace. Um, but I think what you're starting to see is uh, the precursor to consolidation around this space, where you had a lot of uh, companies that were solving specific pain points at a point in time um, that, you know, in, in some ways were more product and feature-driven. Um, and you know, in, in an environment or in a world where some traditional technology companies are able to serve this industry, you know, there's real obsolescence risk. Um, and so I think in terms of where kind of the power accrues, and this isn't dissimilar to what we see in traditional tech, is, uh, you know, market power, market concentration around a fewer number of larger platforms um, that kind of subsume some of the smaller players, um, you know, over the next two to three years that, you know, do very well at solving a specific pain point, but as a standalone business, probably don't have as much breadth to be able to, um, you know, build a substantial business around it. Um, that's kind of where, you know, I think things are today. Thank you. Um, and to the other panelists, you know, how, how are you kind of seeing um, uh, evolution in, in your, in your focus area? So, so for example, um, you know, Matt, uh, you know, as you guys are closely, your, your fund is tied into cookies. How, how has that shifted in the last um, couple of years? I'm not sure when you launched the fund, but uh, what, what are some of the areas of focus uh, that you guys are looking at? Um, I, you know, over the, our predecessor fund, you know, invested 25 million across 10 companies. Um, the biggest position was cookies. And as, Cookies moved into 2019. You know, the mantra was to catch revenues up to reputation. And we saw cookies just take off, right? We saw cookies take off, um, you know, just explosive growth, differentiated business model, unique retail presence and growth strategy on that front. Um, we, we, we also saw cookies with a, a gravitational pull that we thought was really unique within the industry, both from other brands that were wanting to get into this ecosystem. Um, but also just ancillary technologies that were just simply buoyed by cookies is rapid growth into new markets, right? So as cookies moves into new markets, it doesn't own any of its supply chain, right? It partners with best in class operators at, at each inflection point and inherent in that model are mutually beneficial partnerships and relationships 
and a dependency on, on best operators and unique technologies that run the entire gamut of the supply chain. Um, what, what we ultimately concluded was that there was a, a fund worth of opportunities um, with cookies and brands, businesses, and technologies that were cookies accretive. And that was the genesis of, of 1212 in our fund. And we started it last year. Two-thirds of our capital raised have gone into cookies itself. We've made two other investments outside of that. Um, but we are more bullish than ever on our on our brands oriented thesis, right? As as legislative developments happen as they did yesterday, you know, we think that walls will fall down, not completely and totally free market. Um, probably look a bit more like booze, where they're all where there are restrictions on a state by state basis. Um, but we think that brands carry the greatest opportunity for for defensibility in the future. Um, we think that they're less less dependent on. Uh, they're, they're more resistant to, to price suppression, margin suppression, um, as these entities, you know, expand. And that's where we're concentrating capital. Um, we think that communities of passionate followers will dictate, um, who does well and who performs. And I, to date, we haven't seen an entity that comes anywhere close to cookies, um, in terms of creating opportunities for investments. And then, um, Kevin, uh, would love to hear your perspective because you're, you're coming from the insurance, uh, angle and, and particularly as companies evolve and are about to go the public route um, and their needs are changing could you kind of describe where you know your your focus is in, in the cannabis space and you may be on mute absolutely uh, uh, thanks you know i uh you know i guess the insurance piece can be viewed as a little bit less than exciting to some people but it's a real problem point in the cannabis uh, ecosystem as as most of you probably know you know i would i would definitely echo what what Maddox said in terms of like the consolidation the obsolescence of uh, of you know this part of the industry in in some of the technology side you know i just talked to a you know a startup last week had a really cool payments platform, and it was kind of like, well, are they going to be around in a year? Who knows? So I think we're going to see a lot of change in this part of the uh, the industry uh, as the needs evolve and uh, and and you know what government regulations kind of shift you know those the, that set of needs. Um, but from like the perspective of insurance, I mean, we we obviously are you know Marsh is a global organization. We've got you know 120 countries, and you know. A multi-billion dollar organization. So we have a lot of resources we can throw at this and we are kind of in the early innings of doing that um, because this is, you know, a, an area of the market that, that requires reform. Uh, safe banking, Claim Act will obviously be a great, uh, you know, lead in to having more insurance capital show up in the marketplace. Uh, and I think that's going to take time even after, you know, something like that passes. Um, but bring it back to the relevance to this, you know, pick and shovel uh, type of, you know, business here. That's a good entry point for a lot of insurers kind of to take the crawl before they walk type of, you know, risk, uh, you know, tolerance level. Because, you know, you have a lot of uh, every insurance company knows that, you know, the cannabis industry is evolving and there's, you know, needs and there's money to be made and there's, you know, insurance to be provided, but a lot of them are very, you know, restricted by, you know, the organizations. Um, and I think as you see uh, regulatory, you know, environments shift, uh, you know, in favor of the industry and, and the evolution of the industry, you'll see that that will be the first place where, you know, large insurers will come in and and be able to participate because, you know, 
there's a distinction between there's there's some implied risk in the marketplace that non plant touching business is less risky than uh, or is uh, less risky than a plant touching business. I you know theoretically disagree with that. I think the risk is equal with either business because you're kind of can't get a little bit pregnant type of thing. Um, but I think it will be where and it currently is where some marginal players are participating as a way to kind of enter into the market without feeling that they're directly exposed to like a cultivation facility or, or something like, or a large, you know, inventory issue at like a, a dispensary or a warehouse or something like that. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of where I see, you know, it connecting to this, this panel, but, you know, there is an incredible amount of work to be done uh, and, you know, a lot of changes to be made because, by and large, most of the insurance marketplace is not even participating in cannabis at this point. So um, there's a lot more to come. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kevin. That's perfect transition. Shanita, I know you've got a uh, varied uh, background and you've been involved with quite a few areas um, in your experience, but could you talk about some of the lobbying efforts uh, that are taking place in the cannabis space and some of the other industry participants that are crossing over and supporting cannabis uh, uh, lobbying? Sure thing. I mean, to your point, a lot of times the the picks and shovels are the entry points into the market that don't require um, the highly regulated and competitive licenses, right? And if you're in a state like Maryland, where in 2015, the opportunity was only there for, you know, 12 cultivators, 15 cultivators. Pennsylvania, it was 25. But if you are, you know, someone who's providing lighting, someone who's able to do HVAC, any of those things that support the 25 licensed businesses, you have an opportunity um, that's a lot more uh, realistic than getting into the plant-touching side of the business. As it relates to our lobbying and the work and progress that we're able to make, a lot of times our ancillary businesses are seeing the benefits of our legalization efforts um, in a real way before the plant-touching businesses. So last year, um, in response to the pandemic, you had, um, you know, the SBA, you had um, safe, the SBA language, you had the safe banking language that uh, was all added to COVID relief packages. And so you had this language that was rolled up into something that was, you know, it didn't, it didn't pass the Senate, but it passed the House. And these businesses would have had access to PPP loans, for instance. A year ago, or 2019, when I testified before Congress, I was calling out the fact that we've got cultivators in Oregon who have paid, you know, $500,000 in, you know, city, state, federal taxes over the years who could not because they didn't have great insurance. Uh, didn't have access to SBA or these PPP relief programs that had to either go out of business and some were even using GoFundMe as a, as a fundraising tool to, you know, rebuild their businesses in response to, you know, wildfires or in response to being, um, you know, uh, uh, the, there was also a huge, um, there was so much civil unrest last year that the cannabis industry was actually infected. You had dispensaries that were looted. And so while some of them have, you know, insurance that took care of this, there were a lot more, um, especially in places like Oakland, who were left hanging, especially in places like that I know of, like Oregon. So it's important for, you know, all of the professional services that are 
necessary to support the industry that you find, you know, what it is that's kind of like your lane and, and find a way to support the industry. It creates a new revenue stream for your business. And there are huge opportunities in terms of the growth of this industry uh, as it relates to other sectors that may not be growing as fast. So I think it's it's wildly smart to get in where you fit in and then pivot or grow. Um, and I think that it's always important that we are advocates for what we want the regulatory um, uh, and policy to, to look like for this industry. Thank you for that perspective. I feel like we should have a lobbying breakout. Yeah. Yeah. No, it should, it should have its own uh, breakout. And, and you know, I, I just wanted to note also, uh, we are kind of on a monthly pace right now and we do deep dives into specific areas. This is a big summit, so it's got multiple panels, but we, you know, try to have specific panels. So there'll be plenty of future opportunities for the audience as well as the speakers to kind of do a deeper dive in some of these areas. Um, I'm going to go ahead and queue up the next panel. Appreciate this panel. Uh, and, and there'll be more talk, uh, in the breakouts on this important picks and shovels and, and tech side. Um, so I'm going to queue up the next video here, uh, for the Ben Langley and grow. Um, and I'll, I'll open it up right after this. Hi, my name is Ben Langley. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Grow Group PLC. Grow Group is a medical cannabis company. Uh, we're a European leader in medical cannabis based out of the UK. Uh, we fundamentally believe, I fundamentally believe as, a, as an investor, as an entrepreneur, there are hundreds of millions of patients globally who could and should benefit from cannabis medicines. And ultimately, only a small portion of those people are actually getting that medicine that would ultimately improve their lives in a legal context. So this is a dynamic that, that, that we as Grow um, seek to solve. So our mission is to get quality cannabis medicines uh, to the patients that need them. Um, and we're doing a fairly good job of that in the UK and Ireland so far. We're leaders in the UK and Ireland, which are growing very exciting markets. And we're just expanding into continental Europe currently from a, from a distribution perspective. So so very excited about what we have uh, ahead. I'm looking forward to talking about it tomorrow with the, with the panel. Uh, 361 always run excellent events, uh, 420 a big day in the industry. So so very much looking forward to, to sharing um, the story of Grow. Uh, my story, I'm, I'm an ex-banker, ex-Jacob Morgan, spent 12 years as an investment banker there, uh, and now dedicated completely to cannabis, clearly. So looking forward to talking about that, and looking forward to meeting everyone. Um, anyone that sort of wants to reach out uh, in the meantime or after, uh, please do get in touch. Uh, best email for me is ben.langley at growbiotech.com. ben.langley at growbiotech.com. So again, looking forward to speaking with folks and looking forward to uh, some panel tomorrow. Thank you very much. And uh, so now we're in the downstream part and we're talking about the uh, consumer touching, the patient touching part of the cannabis ecochain and then uh, companies actually that tie into that part um, that might be kind of tech enabled. So uh, Ben, uh, as I queue up the next speaker's video, could you talk about uh, in specific the UK and Irish market what is taking place there uh, on a uh, the, on the medical uh, uh, front, and, and and kind of what what are patients looking for, and how are they accessing cannabis in, in that market? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so you have three different points. Uh, so the UK market opened up in 2018. Uh, the Irish market uh, 20 well 2019, but a very slow burn. So th these are very young, uh, nascent markets uh, which are developing uh, at what was initially a, a slow rate, uh, but what is now 
um, thanks to the work of, uh, of the industry, but also a sort of upswell from patients really starting to accelerate. So uh, but the Irish market is, is, is still small, but, but, but growing uh, relatively well. It's I don't know, 50 patients now to put it in perspective. It really is small. Uh, but the UK market is now in the multiple thousands of patients. And and it really is on a curve where it's probably doubling in size every every two months, something like that right now. So it's it's really starting to kick in. It's starting to be uh, a real industry that people are, are paying attention to. Uh, and, and part of that, just as a quick sort of sidetrack, you'll see uh, you may have seen that the London Stock Exchange has recently opened up uh, to medical cannabis companies. So um, the, the groundswell in terms of patient interest has also become a bit of a. Uh, a sort of groundswell in terms of retail investor interest uh, and a few institutions. So London Stock Exchange opening up has been a been a big, uh, big market, a big moment for the market. But so that's a bit of a sidetrack. If we focus in on on patients. And as I said in my my video, which hopefully came through OK, um, we're a patient focused organisation. That's that's why Grow exists. Uh, that's why we get out of bed. Uh, our mission is to get quality cannabis to the patients that need it. Um, and it's it's a really interesting market, uh, the UK and Ireland, because it, it's really existed because of patients in the first instance. So to put that in perspective, uh, and, and people in the, a lot of people know this anyway, but with pharmaceuticals, generally medicines are somewhat preordained from the top. So big pharma comes up with medicines, um, regulators approve them after years and years of process, uh, and then patients hear about them. So with medical cannabis in the UK, what was quite neat is that this all began with patients and patient stories and patient passions. So the big opportunity that we focus on is grow. Uh, and that I think is the real market opportunity in Europe generally. And this goes to the point made, I think, by Matt from 1212 earlier, is there's a real brand interest piece where you can really relate to patients and to patients' interests um, and actually have a, have a conversation with them, have a dialogue with them and talk to them about the medicine, educate them about the medicine. Um, we as a pharmaceutical company clearly educate doctors, and that's a massive part of, of our, our job unblocking the, the supply chain, making sure doctors are, are willing and able to prescribe. But also actually that piece around uh, speaking with, with patients and sort of hearing their desires, hearing what they like, hearing what they don't like, educating them on terpene profiles and what it means, sharing with them sort of latest um, latest research. All of these things really move the dial. So. Um, I'll stop in a sec, but th th this is one of the reasons that we did, did deals with Aurora and Tilray and Columbia Care. It's because there's a there's a huge opportunity in the UK to really appeal to to, to patients and really actually um, obviously do the best for them medicinally as well, which is the most important thing. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. Um, and next up here in the intro video side is uh, Kevin Gibbs. So I'll play that and then turn it over to Kevin with a with a question. My name is Kevin Gibbs, co-founder of Merida Capital Holdings. We are a cannabis-specific private equity fund. We manage approximately $500 million across our three funds, our co-investments, and our NASDAQ-listed SPAC. Um, our responsibility inside Merida is operations across 45 cultivation, processing, and dispensary assets uh, located in five different states. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and so, you know, the scope of how you're involved is is quite quite large. Can you talk about some of that uh, kind of branding and um, uh, consumer facing uh, from an operational point of view? Uh, how how uh, has you know your your uh, group and, and and Merida kind of 
taken on that challenge of managing these assets and and how is it different in in uh different markets that you're uh you're involved with so uh, listen uh first of all Anand, thank you for having me today i think that uh given the uh you know relative youth of the industry you know we're just starting to see some brands be able to cross you know state lines and then we had an earlier guest who was talking about cookies which has been one of the few that's really successfully been able to uh you know, penetrate multiple markets. Uh, you know, we're heavily dependent on our local operational partners. So in each state, you know, we're actually under, uh, you know, different brands based on, uh, you know, the regulatory approvals we receive through the, uh, licensing process. So, uh, uh, but what we have been able to, uh, you know, take the synergies, we, Merida is invested in around 50 different portfolio companies. So we're able to take, you know, some of those, uh, synergies and, uh, you know, related ecosystem parts and, you know, kind of plug and play into all of our entities. So, uh, you know, for example, we're invested in a, uh, a company called Premium 5 out of Canada. Uh, they're a top-notch extraction company. Uh, we're able to insert them into our uh, processing licenses in various states to, you know, be able to bring their product menu uh, to, uh, you know, the uh, companies we have, you know, in Missouri and Michigan and uh, Virginia and West Virginia. I appreciate that. Um I'm going to keep the, the videos moving along, then I'll open it up to the panel because it's an interesting linkage through the, the various speakers here. Um, and so next up, uh, let me just queue up the video here. We've got Rob Davis from, uh, from Alt and I'm going to share my screen and just queue up that video real quick. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Davis. I am the CEO and co-founder of Alt Advanced Liquid Technology. Alt is a premium liquid cannabis company with a mission to enhance human potential through our proprietary nanotechnology. Our revolutionary THC beverage enhancing products are currently available throughout California, offering a completely elevated and differentiated consumer experience. Our focus is really to empower consumers to create their own experience through precision dosing, an incredibly fast onset, a consistent offset, a completely unique euphoria, discretion, portability, versatility, and adaptability of our liquid into any beverage. In addition to our retail focus, our technology allows us to empower third-party beverage and edible products through our wholesale and white label business. For more information on Alt and the cannabis and lifestyle platform we're creating, please visit our website, altlife.com or Instagram at altlife. My email address is robert at altlife.com. It's an honor to be a part of the 420 Cannabis Summit with all of you. A big thank you to Bar Capital and to the 361 firm for the opportunity. And I look forward to seeing you all on 420. Thanks so much. Um, so, so Rob, just uh, on your uh, product, how how are you looking to reach your audience? You know, what what is kind of the landscape you're looking at as you as your looks like you're you're ramping up here? Um, you know, and and how do you differentiate yourself? versus other products that are out in the market um, uh, uh, as, as far as your, your outreach? Sure. A pleasure to be with everyone today. Uh, just to give everyone a, a feel for what our product looks like, uh, this is Alt in a five-pack 10-milligram format. 
And you know, we believe that a beverage is the future. We believe that the category will be one of, if uh, not the biggest in the end. And uh, with that belief, we have differentiated through both our brand and our technology. And so what I just showed you uh, really empowers the consumer to create their own beverage experience to decide how many milligrams of cannabis they want to pour it into their beverage of choice. Uh, our technology uh, is a nanotechnology, which for everyone uh, is understanding, by basic definition, breaks down the particle size of cannabis. Uh, that allows for much greater bioavailability and uh, allows the medicine to bypass the, the liver, the blood-brain barrier. So you get almost immediate effects more similar to smoking, 5 to 15-minute onset, 2 to 3-hour uh, consistent offset, depending on individual and dose, and a, a very unique euphoria. And so uh, we, again, have designed a product that we feel is completely elevated. It's encouraged to microdose. It's encouraged to help people enhance and define flow states. And uh, our focus currently in California is uh, to some extent in dispensary, but we're really uh, focused more online, uh, D to C, we believe, um, and, and based on the data that we're seeing, that uh, that's where the, the majority of the consumers are buying the lower dose beverage products. And so our online focus will continue to be a, a bigger focus than in dispensary. Um, and then it's a matter of looking kind of multi-state international uh, to some of the markets with a little bit lower barriers of entry to that of California um, to look to profitability and, and to scale and to, to brand awareness through those markets. Great. Thank you. Um, and then last but not least, uh, we have uh, Jeff Graham from uh, Pistol. Uh, Jeff, I know you didn't have a chance to record the video, I believe, but uh, if you could give a quick intro and where you're focused in the uh, uh, ecosystem as far as um, uh, working in the in, in the cannabis space. Sure. Thank you. Um, greetings from my garage in Northern California. Um, I am an Internet guy, pretty recent to cannabis. My background uh, is in data science and research. I was head of research at the New York Times, director of research at Google, uh, VP of market insight at Twitter, where I built uh, the analytics team there. And my last job previous to cannabis was managing director at BlackRock, where I led globally marketing analytics. So I come from outside of cannabis. I joined uh, the cannabis industry a couple of years ago came in as head of business intelligence for a vertically integrated uh, cannabis company. I joined cannabis because kind of for the same reason that I joined the internet industry 25 years ago. Um, I see it as a, a similar opportunity in terms of growth uh, and impact from a social and cultural perspective. Um, so uh, I'm CEO of Pistol. Uh, out of the experience of working at NorCal Cannabis, basically I came into that business as the data guy and looked around and saw that there was very little data available for cannabis brands. Uh, it's a, it's a big market with, uh, that's very under-resourced from a data perspective. Uh, I started, uh, Pistol, uh, last year. We launched our product, uh, in February of this year. So about 10 weeks ago, we're now at $200,000 in annual recurring revenue. So, um, our, our product is, um, been quite successful. Um, just in terms of 
showing you guys what it looks like. Um, we've built a mobile app that allows cannabis sales uh, teams to prospect accounts, um, to keep track of their current accounts, uh, to make sure that they can stay on the shelf, and then get information about local markets to understand uh, what their competition is doing so that they can better prospect uh, 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 new retailers for them to get into. Um, finally, just in terms of um, my perspective uh, from California, I'd offer that right now I see that brands are uh, relatively weak relative to the power of uh, retailers. Um, the market is extremely dynamic, um, almost to the point of chaos with uh, huge turnover in terms of products and pricing. Um, and right now, um, there's a big opportunity for brands to break out of the current equation from the consumer who is primarily focused on uh, value and price. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. And so I'll open the, the question up in, in a couple areas. And uh, uh, Kevin, I'll start with you. I know you've got a, a meeting coming up after this and we were running a little behind. But um, could you we, we got connected because of a particular uh, asset you you were uh, talking to me about in Michigan, and so we haven't spotlighted kind of the Michigan Illinois space. But could you talk a bit more about um, 315 and, and kind of how that story developed when you when you guys got involved at Merida? And uh, you know some of these questions. And, and and to Jeff's point, the brand space is quite crowded. Um, how how and who decides which brands you're kind of working with and 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 uh, what the local market is is looking for. Yeah, so um, we actually uh, met with the guys from 315 in, at the MJ BizCon in, in 2018, and um, it was actually a great conference for us. We got that deal done, and we got a, our deal in Virginia done as well. Um, you know, uh, three dispensaries. We've grown to 12 over the last 18 months. We've got another eight in the development pipeline. Uh, we're building out a cultivation facility. Uh, we're inserting one of our uh, portfolio companies from Merida uh, into the processing lab there. So, uh you know, we're excited about the market, uh, a lot of competition, uh, not as, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, Virginia has a, a high barrier to entry, right? There's only four of us, eight and a half million people. Uh, we're in Maryland, you know, we're, we're one of 15 with, with, you know, six and a half million people. Uh, Michigan is more of a, um, you know, free market where, you know, you sign, you, 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 you sign up, you get a license and then you go compete. And, um, you know, we're, we're excited about the market. You know, it's estimated to be up to about $3 billion, I think, over the next two to three years. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, we're having a lot of success with 315 in Michigan right now. And could you um, talk a little bit about the supply chain part of that? You, you mentioned cultivation uh, in, in Michigan. And one of the great questions that came up, actually, uh, Lori Kibbe had kind of uh, framed this for me, uh, uh, which I thought was great, is, you know, if you own the, the, the supply, you own kind of the quality to the customer. Um, how do you guys kind of think through that in, in terms of working with, uh, different brands and, and, and making sure the consistency and the quality, uh, is there for the, the, the consumer? Yeah, I generally agree with that. One thing we're starting to see though in Michigan is, uh, with, with all the cultivation assets that are coming online, uh, there is a, uh, somewhat of a glut of supply. And uh, with our cultivation, you know, a small cultivation, it's not online yet. Uh, we have a big retail footprint. So we're able to give all the cultivators, you know, real shelf space. And that's actually been very attractive to, uh, to a lot of the cultivators who, you know, uh, are, are looking to try to move their product into a dispensary that doesn't have, 
uh, kind of a bias towards their own uh, brands. So we're actually getting great pricing. We're getting get great products. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting market. We're looking at the evolution of it. But uh, if you would ask me six months ago, I would have told you that I think we need a, a massive grow in Michigan. Uh, today, I don't think that's the case. I think a, a small grow to supply a certain percentage of your uh, shelf space is adequate. And then uh, I think there's a lot of supply coming online. And, and to be a, uh, uh, you know, a fairly large retail footprint without, uh, you know, a large grow behind us gives those uh, cultivators who don't have a big retail footprint, you know, a, uh, a, a nice marketplace to place their products. Thank you. And then opening it up to the other panelists, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to grow all and pistol, all of your models are transportable. Uh, you know, I, I mean, in, in, in Grow's case, you're, you're there with the patient. And as long as you're focused on the patient, uh, in different markets, you can continue, you know, uh, executing, uh, alt, you know, your, if you have your formulation, you can, you can enter different states and in different geographies. And, and Pistol, you're focused on data. So as long as you have good access to the, the data side, you can execute. How do you see the opportunity in the next couple of years? You know, do you have a plan to kind of grow? Locally, uh, do you have a plan to kind of think think more broadly? And I'll kind of just open it up with, with Ben to go first, and, and, and then Rob, and then Jeff, just in, in order of the, the appearance. And then we'll we'll go into the breakout session right after this this question. Yeah, thanks, Anand. Um, so, so look, we've we're, we're doing pretty good in, in Ireland and in, in the UK. As I said, Ireland's small, but but the UK is a really exciting market, and the Ireland will be. So yeah, look, we're happy with what we're doing there, but um, we know our model. Um, will work elsewhere as well. So the market that we're, we're looking at specifically at the moment is Germany. Uh, Germany's the biggest market in Europe, um, most established, most doctors, most patients, etc. So, uh, but also it, it's a place where the, the patient focus that I've talked about a few times actually has really not been applied particularly well. I can't speak for the entrepreneurs and say they didn't have a patient focus, but it hasn't really been executed well at all. So we've been looking at Germany since 2018, actually 2017. Um, and we feel that the model we've built in the UK is is, is very uh, well fitted to the German market. So we'll look at that. So I think in terms of us uh, putting our footprint elsewhere, I'll point at Germany, but then th- there'll be other places that we look at. The other thing I'd say, the sort of the reverse of that is we're also looking always for, for better products, better IP, uh, better brands. So um, one of the things that, that that's interesting uh, is we're currently looking at the US and looking at uh, brands and IP and things that would be would be good for patients for us to bring back to Europe. Um, and that's why it's great to sort of talk on these type panels, because to the extent you guys you guys see stuff, obviously that 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 would be very interesting for us. We think there's a huge opportunity sort of to go back to my banking days and sort of geographic arbitrage to find stuff that works very well in a more established market such as the US and bring it over to, to a less established market such as Europe and sort of fast forward the European market. So that, that's a big focus of ours. Great. Thank you. Rob, you want to give some thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, to your point, Anand, we felt it was incredibly important to own our technology. We're one of the very few brands in the California beverage space that uh, does have in-house technology empowering our products. And, and we felt that it was crucial for that scalability domestically, internationally. It's very, very difficult given the regulatory framework, given the 
uh, taxation, the costs of operating in California to be highly profitable on the THC side. We believe that you know, California is is the mecca, so to speak, that it's important to uh, build a brand here that you can then translate that brand into other domestic international markets much more easily. So we're happy with that decision and you know, continuing to stay heavily focused on California. However, uh, looking at uh, the profitability, we are uh, very focused on certain states throughout the U.S. where we feel that uh, you know, the cost of, of entry, the barriers to entry are much lower um, and the profitability is going to be much higher in addition to uh, certain international markets, which would connect the brand with uh, the rest of the world through gateway countries. Thank you. And Jeff, your, your thoughts as well? Yeah, we're currently uh, have access to data to 91% of retailers across the U.S. Uh, we've started in California just basically to build our product that we can work with people locally to develop that. But uh, we're rolling out to Colorado this quarter, and we hope to be in every rec legal state by the end of the year. That is the great thing, as you mentioned, about being a data company. We're a SaaS data company, so it's a platform that uh, basically um, scales um, as an ancillary business um, that um, that scales pretty well nationally. Great. Thank you. I see that the breakout rooms are opening up. Um, Mark, I'm going to ask for your help on uh, how to get people uh, into the different rooms. I know I'm on the tech side. Uh, here's the list of the, the moderators, Jim, actually, Jim Hawk, if you could just give a quick primer on um, how the moderators should kind of run run their session and how uh, participants should uh, should engage there. And then after the breakout sessions, we're going to come back for a town hall. Uh, given the timing, uh, and I did catch up somewhat time, uh, 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 we, we'd like to do the town hall uh, probably around 2, uh, let's say 2.20 uh, or 2.15 2 uh, is, is only about 10 minutes. So, yeah, 2.20 or so if we can circle back. So try to keep intros limited because most of you have heard the panelists and, and some of them will be participating, but try to dig into your areas in, in more detail. And, and, Jim, if you have any other um, high-level uh, in, instructions, please uh, go ahead now. Yeah, so just very briefly, um, try to set the room at the beginning. Uh, sort of, for example, this is the hemp breakout room, focus on the topic. Um, again, we want to keep intros very brief because the idea is to have substantive uh, discussion and we can pick off from, pick up where we left off with some of the topics where there's more relevant conversation to be had. Um, but, you know, try to focus the time. Uh, the breakout is obviously for discussion, um, and so we would really prefer that there not be pitching. Um, and, you know, that's more or less it. Uh, hopefully the moderators all have some thoughtful questions to be conversation starters, but otherwise I don't really think that's going to be much of a problem. So really looking forward to the breakout. Thank you, Jim. And then we'll cir circulate those thoughts back around 220, 225 uh, in the town hall portion, which is always really great because we get to um, kind of summarize and, and, and see where things stand. So please join the one you're interested in now. I'm going to go to the tech one and I'll see you guys back at around 220, 225. I think everybody's back. Mark, you want to run this uh, town hall piece while I uh, stuff my face with pizza and take myself off video for a second? No, I think we should watch you eat the pizza. And <laughs> it's, not a pretty, it's not a pretty sight. I think everybody wants pizza. That's, that was the wrong thing to say, but it's okay. All good. Uh, well, 
you know, what we do here, it's, it's sort of our tradition. This really goes back to 2006 in New York City when I started Denison Connecting, which people like Kevin and Matt may remember in some some incarnation. But we just go around and then come back together and and see how we can help each other. And nothing to do with finance or investment. But now we are trying to help each other find capital, deals, talent, all the rest. So, and, uh, and otherwise, how to educate each other, do other events. So since I can't really call an on on the tech, uh, or I can. Wow, that was fast. I'm fast. I'm fast. Yeah, a little right here on the, the lip. It's a problem with having a beard. Um, actually, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up, but, but Maddox was in, in the group and, and kind of gave perspective on the tech side. But on the tech front, um, it was interesting because our group consisted of folks that run, um, you know, cultivation, vertically integrated cultivation, as well as, uh, folks that have been in the industry from an operator point of view. Um, so I think some of the key take, takeaways were, you know, number one, it's still very early days on the cannabis tech side. Um, this is not anywhere close to other developed applications of tech in other industries. Uh, the, the, the valuation uh, picture has changed where uh, cannabis tech companies are focused on very scalable um, audiences and, and customer bases. Uh, and so there is a, a marked increase in valuations because a lot of these folks have been able to execute and, and, and grow in, in those platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the other part is there's still a lot of parts of cannabis that are challenging on a scalability front because uh, they have to do with specific regulations and specific geographies and uh, it's not uniform. And so it's a, it's a messy space in, in, you know, part, parts of the ecosystem. But um, I think those were the key takeaways. Did anyone else in that group to not and catch it? Or even if you weren't in that group, any other comments or questions on tech? And we'll, we'll keep it going. Jen? Sure. So uh, in the cultivation and breeding room, we had a diverse group of folks, and we were focused on sort of the question that I raised was the consumer demand for cannabis and how is this going to evolve over time and impact plant and genetics? And how are we going to use genetics to support different use cases for the plant? And so actually Greg, um, Greg Vernon, who's, who's with us and has a company out of Canada and in Colombia, is, is actually doing this and thinking through this. So he has a couple of takeaways that he's going to share with the group right now. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we're a Canadian company, but we operate our cultivation operation in Colombia. Uh, Colombia has a 12 month, uh, uh, process for registering uh, each specific uh, genetic. So it becomes really critical for us to identify something that we think is going to be successful on the cultivation front, but also uh, meets market demand in the 12 or 14 month range. And I think this is really going to be a key issue go forward because I think genetics, as they continue to develop, especially for specific applications, becomes really important for someone in our situation where we need uh, to identify that genetic uh, 12, 14 months in advance and, and get it ready and get it cropped. One of the things we were lucky we identified and obtained some uh, genetics for a, a very high performing CBG and that's clearly identifies to us why this is an important aspect for what you're gonna be growing, harvesting and planting in 12 months from now. Fair enough. 
Any any comments, questions on breeding, cultivation, processing? If not, over to you, Jim. Well, just that this is Lauren Taylor from Chicago. I was in the breakout room. I was just talking about how here in Chicago, the cannabis business in general has become a social justice issue that uh, the first round, for instance, of dispensary licenses that they gave in Chicago, there were no African Americans. And so a lot of the people that I know here in Chicago are actually thinking about, you know, cultivation as, you know, a way, you know, to get, you know, increase uh, uh, minority and more diverse participation in the industry. We covered, when did you join, uh, Lauren? Did you join when we had... Uh, I, 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 only, I only got in maybe about like 45 minutes after you guys started. I had, I, had, well, I had some chores no. to do. That's okay. Dashida uh, Dawson and Shanita. I, I did catch the I did catch the end of that, and I just uh, I said Dashida accepted my uh, LinkedIn invite, so I think we're gonna I'll be able to come. connect with her. That's a KPI for me. You guys connect on things. You, you share mutual interests on. Um, let me go back then uh, to uh, on brand, Jim. Yeah, so I just wanted to follow up on something that Anand said very early in the in the event, and that is he used the metaphor of LASIK and his glasses, which I thought was very good because there was a prop involved. So nice job, Anand. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that occurs to me about that metaphor is that, you know, like cannabis, LASIK is not for everyone, right? It's not every, not everyone's uh, bag and not everyone's condition makes them a candidate. But for those that do need or want it, it they can only get it because there was a structure in place to make it available. So, you know, I thought that was uh, important to put forth. So in the brand room, we had a great conversation um, and really culminating with, I think, what it means to be uh, or, or what the qualifications are or goals uh, for being a, a legacy cannabis brand. Um, and uh, I think that um, Jeffrey put it very succinctly was that sometimes strength and price are proxies for quality, which may be kind of a deep dive. Um, thing uh, on its own. Uh, but Lori uh, helped to kind of clarify along with uh, some other folks help that really it's kind of this trinity of things. It's quality, pricing, and identity as a package uh, that's required for market leadership. And that together with education and, you know, this being the, the you know, really important time for that education uh, to the consumer is what will be important for leadership for brands. Do you agree, Mr. Cookies, Matt Barron? I think Matt jumped off. No, Matt. No, I'm not. Apologies, guys. Um, I do. You know, I, 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 I do. I, I think, I think um, people aggregate around brands. I think people tell their friends about brands, and mainly brands with authentic and differentiated stories. I think that, um, I think that cannabis is moderately overwhelmed right now by, by labeling companies that are purporting to being brands, right? They're trying to slap a clever name or a, a, a cute logo onto a bag and open source their products. And it, 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 Coca-Cola isn't a successful cola company because it has the exact same cola as everybody else, right? Budweiser is not a successful beer company because it has the same beer as everybody else, right? There has to be something 
foundationally differentiated from you as a brand that you then weave a narrative around um, to differentiate yourself from the rest of the market. And I, I think that that's something that Burner has done remarkably well with cookies over a 12-year period, right? And you see a lot of new entrants that are trying to accelerate that process, and um, it's, it's immensely challenging to do so, which creates a healthy, helpful and healthy moat for us. But I think that those points are well taken. Anyone else on brands? So I think tech merged with picks and shovels. So then it came, this distribution dispensary was the, uh, was, uh, I guess the grow room. Yeah, no, it was a smaller, more intimate conversation. Um, but in, you know, just in terms of, uh, Living here in Colorado and also just kind of giving my own thought here on the distribution and dispensary side. Um, you know, I think that the marketplace, it changes over time. And, and even to the, to the point that, um, Matt was making on the, on the brand side, I think originally people were looking at the, the dispensary was the brand. Now you're starting to see more differentiation as the market becomes more developed and, and, um, as the, and also people's tastes and preferences, uh, grow and there's a lot more opportunities. Um, I think on the, and in terms of what we were talking, um, as we had, um, uh, um, sorry. Ben, uh-huh. yeah, we had ben, Duncan, Duncan, ben, yeah, we had Ben and Duncan, but, um, Ben obviously being in, in the UK, their marketplace is also still in the earlier stage in terms of where Europe is. And, you know, I think that he's doing a really good job, but you know, the marketplace is developing. And I think that you really also have to look at, you know, your, Oregon, your Washington, your your um, Washington State, your um, California. I think all the markets are kind of developing in their own in their own pace. And I think with Europe, I mean, it's it's still kind of moving ahead, and um, the model's growing and more acceptance. And but it all comes down to a lot of education, a lot of um, opportunity sets. By the way, seeing dispensary and no have a special relationship with Ohio, they're giving out another 60-ish dispensary licenses. Oh, are they? Um, well, the other thing too, just even to add, just to add one more Colorado thing, was just that yesterday they passed a um, a law um, of allowing for um, direct delivery as well as um, more social engagement and gathering places. So just as you kind of look at some of the markets that are a little more developed. And, and they're looking at creating a new type of license, and they are also looking at the social dynamics because there weren't as many women or uh, minorities that were involved in some of the earlier licenses that were given. Um, so it is uh, something that's being conscious and, and something that they're looking at to a number of the other conversations that were being discussed. So let's let's talk about hemp. Um, you mentioned you were talking about the trifurcated regulatory approaches, and Scott. I know you had you had slides. Do you want to you if you want to share your slides if that helps? Um if if I could just interject real quick Mark, I actually have to pick up my daughter from daycare at uh 2:45 so I have a hard stop but and and uh I would love to catch Scott's piece because I I talked with Scott before and I think he's got some very interesting parts. Um I just wanted to thank a few people in particular, uh, all of the the breakout room moderators, uh, obviously Mark and Anessa and 361 firm but uh, Michael Fields, thank you for the uh, recruitment of great speakers. Uh, Jen Vasek, thank you. And Cedric, um, I think you're uh, still on here. Yeah, there you are, Cedric uh, Watkins as well uh, uh, for for the recruitment part. So appreciate that. And 
Um, and we'll see, I'm sure see you all pretty soon. Um, but it really enjoyed today's summit. It was, it was epic. Uh, it was beyond epic, I would say, uh, versus how Mark had described well, the, the key is to be catalytic. That where does, where do we go from here? That's what I want to talk about. Well, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll debrief you after you get your daughter without I'll circle back. Yeah. It's a recorded session. So I'll cast the end of the tape later. All right. Great. Thank you again. Anand. Thank you. Take care. So thank, as you, you. thank you. So I do want everyone to be thinking about that because I think each of these can be their own deep dives. So go ahead, Scott. Take so it away. Mark, you want to see a few slides? I'll show you. Yeah, a yeah. Go quick for here. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'm just going to say I have to go also. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to meet you all and hope to see you at the next one. Absolutely. Jen. Thanks, Jen. I was, Jen. So can everybody can see the slide now? Yep. Yeah. Go for it. Great. So I tried to just pose a few questions. Wasn't really sure what people's interest in the hemp side would be, whether it's going to be an extension of what we've seen uh, grow in cannabis or whether it's going to be a complete departure. Obviously, my position is very different uh, than a lot of the, the cannabis speculators would be. Um, I see the, the purpose of, of our role in the short term is to create a, a more resilient and balanced uh, economy on a state-by-state -state basis, so long as we have states kind of fighting for who's going to have the better regs, uh, you know, our plan was to simply introduce a co-op that uh, establishes uh, a balanced uh, ecosystem on a state-by-state -state basis that matches uh, the industrial capacity with the farm capacity with the workforce capacity. And that's really what the HMP plan was about. So my questions were, were generally aimed at where people are interested, uh, where they think we can accelerate, and where the support, you know, should go right off the bat. And there was a lot of questions. Cedric uh, was on the call as well and had some great questions, as did Chaz and a few others. Uh, as to, you know, where where do we go from here? And so, you know, I really just wanted to illustrate that, you know, the discussion on marijuana as a, a medical and versus a drug obviously are, are two separate, but there's so much more breadth to what hemp can do uh, in, in an economic development capacity, a domestic economic development capacity, that that's really where we wanted to focus. And some of the points I made were simple. There's 65,000 co-ops. One in three Americans already belong to a co-op, so it seems natural that we would want to take – uh, a position of de-risking farmers. And until we have proper banking, until we have proper investment, until we have proper insurance, there's always going to be risk on the farmers. And we think that we can um, put a lot of weight uh, into um, you know, de-risking their position. And, that, and that's really what we were trying to go for. And part of that was, was all about compliance. And I, I thought it was important to mention that uh, our chief compliance officer, Vlad Kapusin, who's obviously someone that Mark and uh, most of the folks at 361 firm know well, uh, left New York Life and, and joined us uh, and brings a, a ton of experience to that space, which we feel honored to have, obviously, uh, as, as that type of uh, perspective uh, and, and experiences can be very valuable when, when investors, especially on the industrial side, do start to take industrial hemp more seriously. But, you know, centers of excellence, again, consensus and compliance, along with building community. The community is already there. I, you know, as we learn from most farmers, all of them have some experience in hemp if they've been farmers for more than a generation, um, it's just time to rekindle that, uh, that relationship. Um, and that's really where, where we went with that. So, if that helps. But I'd be, yeah, I think uh, like, let's just take him for example. I'd love to, to dive in, you know, just see, you know, this, see the size and, and the market dynamics, supply, demand. Um, yeah. And, you know, of course, I'm a deal guy, so we look at all the transaction activity, and then we would be all smarter to figure out where to who to back and how. 
you raise, you raise a good point, Mark, and that's partly why you know we initiated uh, open dialogue and uh, and the strategic partnership with Central State University, Ohio State University, and we had research experience with a dozen universities over the last six years. And uh, in a couple of the questions I posed to a few of the people on your panels today that, that work in the data science uh, went very simply. I'm like, when are you going to start covering hemp, and when can we start to put hemp on the map as far as you know the industrial impact uh, that it possesses? And the answers were soon but not yet. <laughs> so hopefully we'll have some data to back oh. up our interest. Uh, how about, yeah, I was going to say there, the couple sources I thought of don't, don't have that yet. But, you know, you, obviously Brian Shing from ArcView, uh, or XArcView, Asia Horizons, uh, has a hemp focus. And actually, you could easily have a huge hemp event. So what about other events, everybody, um, that people might like? Or other takeaways? I'll tell you, the breakout session wasn't long enough for the questions that I had on, on hemp, so I would love to do a deep dive if you want. I'm happy to uh, to organize it and uh, put a presentation yeah. together, and we can go deep on that anytime. Maybe that's that point. It's, if you're new to us, we just – we're like – we, we, we use the word co-leaders. Again, it goes back to my Denison connecting and Michigan connecting. Just whoever wants to do it, raise your hand. We'll help you put it together. We just want it to be as best and thoughtful. And we, and we try not to let one person, not, nothing against you, Scott, try to get around, a round table around everything. A 360, we call it. So, get, get two, three, four people and, I'll be interested in helping with that one. Okay. Scott, Cedric, I can can even – what we do every Wednesday, so tomorrow, at 1030, we get together and we go to breakout rooms to get events put together um, or even to brainstorm. So that's sort of how the the cybersecurity took a series of those meetings. We're going to do Africa, right, Cedric? That's right. So – which dovetails with him as well, as well as impact and some of the other fantastic panels you guys have been doing since I've been participating. Excellent. Um, and Lauren, you've got your hand up again. Or is that from before? No, that was just signaling my uh, interest in, in what you were proposing to set up there. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, come, come on Wednesdays. Um, that's sort of how the sausage making happen. I mean, are you, send, are you sending out announcements or, you know, I'm on, I guess I'm on your mailing list now. Uh, if you don't, just reach out to um, me, M. Sainer at 361firm.com. You know, I think, obviously, what I think you're, you're angling at and it's part of our impact side is, is inclusion and social justice. So that's just manifesta- manifesting itself. In- yep. As, as, as we said here in here in Illinois and Chicago, even the can it seems like everything now becomes a social justice issue. And cannabis cultivate cannabis business being one of them. I think everything social justice and fintech somehow. I don't know how that. We should probably merge the two more often. Um, anyone else on on other events um, that you'd like to see? I mean, the tech group 
could merge with the venture side of our houses, do something. And obviously the ag side uh, has done some things with the breeding cultivation. On um, brands, Jim, you've got people like Tom Jump, right? The, you know, our, our consumer facing side uh, could, could do, be an interesting fusion. So, my, my, I guess my, my request is just come on Wednesdays. Uh, we do them on Tuesdays are a little more free, and Wednesdays are breakouts as we try to plan these events. I mean, Kevin, that we're looking at doing insurance, um, a bit of an insurance tech event, but um, you could, you obviously. Yeah, yeah, any any insight that I could add on the insurance side? You know, happy to happy to participate. I think uh, <clears throat> as it pertains to cannabis and insurance tech, um, you know, for the ecosystem of like mom and pops that just need basic like insurance to check the box. You know, I think a you know a a tech solution for insurance would suffice. But when you're talking about like real companies, public companies companies raising money, um, they can't, they are not properly insured when, uh, when they go through like some of these tech platforms. I, I'd love to understand how big the insurance market is for cannabis and what's driving it. Is it the, are the debt guys, you know, for covenants uh, or ec- equity, institutional equity, just good practice um, by shareholders? What, what's, What's what's driving it? Uh, I don't I don't make that connection between the shareholder and like driving like the. So I'm not sure exactly what you mean. I look at that as risk management, just just good prudent risk management. Uh, oh, why aren't they why aren't they participating more broadly? Or just what is driving it? It's either the debt the debt covenants, uh, some kind of equity uh, or M and A covenants, or it's good governance. Um, uh, right, right now, the most important dynamic is the fact that the majority of <clears throat> meaningful insurance capital is completely on the sidelines. They're not participating at all. All right, so there's not there's nothing driving. There's not there, what's driving it is a lack of you know once safe banking passes or the claim act or this like phantom Schumer act which is yet to be kind of released. Once that passes, that's when the insurance, when safe banking, you know, opens things up for banks, that's when capital will start to flow for insurance companies. And it won't be overnight because there's still a lot of hair on this industry, but they'll be able to participate. Right now, they can't. They can't bank the premiums and they don't have an understanding properly of what the risk landscape is. Um, You know, there's been... 30 securities claims for publicly traded companies in cannabis space. Uh, that's not helping either. Uh, right. it's, it's going to be, it's going to be dicey for a long time, but at least once the regulatory environment shifts in favor of the industry in terms of a backstop and a lack of, you know, the feds being a looming kind of, you know, potential, you know, threat, um, you know, that's when things start to open up a little bit. It's going to take time though. Fair enough. Any other final thoughts, takeaways, or otherwise? No, I'm I'm always interested, you know, uh, based on Kevin's comments about you know the remarket for cannabis and how that's going to develop, and you know uh, I just think it's 
non-existent right now. And I think like any other mature space, it's got to be there, right, Kevin? I mean, it's got to come in. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's one step behind what I was talking about. So like one, you know, I think that, you know, it, it'll, it's not going to like waterfall, you know, and all of a sudden the reinsurance markets are going to just kind of pop up and just provide billions on top of billions. I think it's going to happen a little more slowly. But, you know, our head of reinsurance is having very active conversations with all the markets in Bermuda and London. And, you know, we are prepared for that. Um, you know, so it is there's a lot of talk. There's a little bit of work, but it's, you know, it's still early on that. There's another aspect, which is interesting, we should get all the consultants who advise the institutional investors. And because uh, I know there have been some breakthroughs, small ones, but uh, in fact, you had one. I don't know if you'll, I can show him on my screen, but uh, there's a there's a pension that, that we're close to that's had use it and use a consultant, and now they feel that comfortable um, on certain ways to play cannabis. I think that's that's going to be a watershed when, you, when that starts to happen. And maybe that like this will help nudge that. But they, you know, some people are taking their own views on that. I don't see Wayne Abramson. Yeah, there's some families that have been in this space for five, six, seven years, and they're now doubling, tripling down. But I still think the smartest way to do it is to play. You'll hear this a lot from me: is to play with the funds. I don't know if you have any funds still on. I'm not trying to suck up to you. Um, but that's just what they see. They see more deal flow. Any other thoughts? Well then, I I think uh, I'll try. We'll try. Well, we'll share some of the re recordings and takeaways, and of which we'll try to get some some of these dives happening over the next uh, few weeks and months. Everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, everybody. Great event, Mark. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Mark.